What if I told you that you could help solve the hospitality recruitment crisis with just £10? You'd say, shut up, take my money, wouldn't you? Well, that's exactly what a new initiative called Hospitality Rising is going to do. Between now and May the 12th, we are raising £5 million to fund the biggest hospitality recruitment advertising campaign that the UK and beyond has ever seen. We want to double the amount of people who would consider working in hospitality. Think army, be the best, but for hospitality. All we need from you is £10 per employee that you have in your business and together we can stop this recruitment crisis forever. Go to hospitalityrising.org now to find out how you can help today and don't forget to tell your HR team and your CEO. Supersonic! 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 Supersonic. Supersonic. From Supersonic Inc., this is the Mark McSee Supersonic Marketing Podcast. The rocket fuel podcast for food, drink and hospitality businesses everywhere. Listen up, tell all your friends and share with your colleagues. Every single episode is packed full of tips, tricks and advice on how you can make your brand boom. Hello, it's Adam here from Storekit. We're the easy mobile ordering system for ambitious operators. We love Mark so much that for podcast listeners, we've got a very special deal. If you head to storekit.com forward slash demo and quote supersonic in the form, you can get £50 donated to a hospitality charity of your choice. All you need to do is complete the demo and be a real business. So if you're experiencing trouble finding staff, if you want to boost premium orders, or if you just want to manage an outdoor area with the easiest possible system you can find, head to Storkit right now and check it out. A creative agency for the hospitality sector, Saved by Robots create compelling brands and memorable experiences through great design and engaging storytelling. From Scottish Restaurant of the Year Sugar Boat to Tip Jar, the digital tipping platform that's taken over the world, Saved by Robots excel at bringing ideas to life. As well as developing new concepts and refreshing existing brands, the robots provide outsourced graphic design to help multi-site operators grow with confidence. Check out their work and get in touch at savedbyrobots.com. So it's a Friday night and I'm just about to pack everything up. I'm going to get a Wagamama Deliveroo. And I'm probably going to break open some white wine. Um, so I'll need to check if it's in the fridge. Hope you're in a relatively party mood as well, maybe. But this is a long extended episode. And I thought that Charlie McVeigh was the top long talker uh, and best guest from that point of view. But we may have a challenger for the crown. And it's today's guest, Rory Sutherland. If you don't know Rory, he's one of not only the best marketing minds in the world, but the best minds in the world. Rory is an author, a speaker, vice chairman, also at the incredible ad agency Ogilvy, ex-president of IPA, and also helps me on a weekly basis with Hospitality Rising. So as ever, the best episodes are the ones that I don't even get to do an introduction and the guest just runs off into the distance with whatever is on their mind. So this is definitely one of those. It's a stream of consciousness for, man, nearly two hours. Um, so there's a little bit of editing happened just to kind of bring it down. I've made a few interruptions during it. 
But thanks to Rory for spending the time. Also, I hope that karma pays him back for giving me some of his time where he'll sell more books, he'll get more clients, and he'll make new friends and contacts from doing this. So I'll do the intro now. So it gives me the most cranium-bending pleasure ever to introduce to you my next guest, Rory Sutherland. Just thank you for doing this. You know, it's absolutely fabulous. Um, no problem at all. I really mm. can't believe you're doing it. Mm. And also, um, just as a bit of fun, um, just to let you know, I, I got an invite today to do a podcast in the metaverse on Monday. What? Oh, right. Th this is actually happening now, is it? Yeah. So um, my headset arrives tomorrow, uh, Oculus. Um, yeah. And I've, I've been invited with Battenhall. So I'm going to do a podcast with Battenhall on Monday. And How then, does it work? You're represented by some sort of avatar thing, are you? Yeah, and, and weirdly, do you know what? I'll send you a link. There's a fabulous uh, a meeting between Nick Clegg, who's at Facebook now, obviously, and, uh, course, um, yeah. and a, a Financial Times journalist. And what they're doing is uh, having, having the chat. But a couple of th funny things happen. One is no one's got any legs in the metaverse because of the way it works um, yet. Um, and then, so, you know, yeah, Nike, Nike, Nike will be uh, upset. Because I'm, I'm drinking my coffee. I see him drinking his coffee really it's weird. Too, it's too bulky for me to drink my coffee now. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I'm my neck. Oh, how funny. It is a brilliant interview. It's really worth watching. And does the tech world... This is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Good grief. So I'm so excited for that. Yeah, so that's going to be on Monday. Isn't that fantastic? So it'll be similar to that, will it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll make, make myself look sexy. And you presumably have to design your own identity and design your own avatar. Yeah, yeah, that'll be it. But I'm, I'm thinking if there's no legs in the metaverse, mm. like Nike must be pretty annoyed right now. That, they must be panicking like crazy. I'm sure I'm sure it will happen. I'm sure it will happen, you know. The opportunity to sell uh yeah, limited edition digital shoes will yeah. be uh yeah. And I know well they're taking um they're taking thingy to court at the moment. They're taking uh, uh what are they called StockX because StockX has started a thing called the Vault where it's digital NFTs. So you know if you're trading sneakers you don't even have to have the sneakers shipped to you anymore, which is good for the planet. So they'll store them for you. You get the digital version, and then you just trade them whenever the prices went up enough that you want to sell them. Oh, I see. Right, so it is backed by a physical reality. Yeah, well, yeah on, on that case. But what's happened is StockX have went ahead and done it, but Nike haven't approved the, the NFTs. So they're ah. in a they're in a sort of like IP style kind of battle where they say this is unofficial gear. I see. God, that's a legal. That is a legal nightmare, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because the owner does own the shoes, right? He's paid yeah. for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you've paid you've paid for the shoes. So you know, an example would be the new Air Jordan drop. You know, retro version, whatever. You buy them, but there's so many people are just buying them, but they don't want them. You know, they don't want them in their house or their flat no, or... No, 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 no. You know? There's, so. a, there's a very, very interesting business in New York, which is a kind of metaverse of clothes and toothpaste and razors. And you're going, what the hell is he talking about? Right. No, so, so there was this business in New York where basically a lot of New Yorkers had more clothes than they could store. And so the deal was they came to your, they came to your apartment, they photographed everything, 
and you could have your stuff when you wanted something. You just go to your virtual wardrobe and they'd basically ship it to your New York apartment as and when you needed it, you see. Wow. And they presumably stored the stuff in like some warehouse in Jersey or something. And anyway, they then introduced a new business, which I thought was quite clever, which is when you traveled, it only worked within the US as far as I knew. But it's quite, it was actually marginally good for the planet. If you wanted to go to, say, Vegas for a week, uh-huh. you simply chose the clothes you wanted to go to Vegas online that you owned, along with toothpaste, shaving foam, a razor, and all the other stuff you wanted to pack. They then shipped it two days in advance by land transport, by UPS. So you'd then fly to Vegas with nothing more than a laptop. You wouldn't have to take any luggage. You'd arrive at your Vegas hotel and all your clothes would be waiting for you. Then when you left Vegas, you'd simply get it collected. It would be sent back to New Jersey. They'd dry clean all the stuff. They'd make sure the toothpaste wasn't running out and they'd replace your razors and anything you're running out of, like shampoo. Wow. Um, and then basically it was all there and packed, ready for your next trip. Oh. So you had effectively luggage that you only saw when you're on holiday. That's incredible. I mean, actually, it's not totally nuts in the sense that um, luggage is, in some, some cases, the worst part of travel, isn't it? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can, once you've got a load of luggage, you've got to drive to the airport or got a taxi, which adds a whole load of expense. I mean, it's not, it's not, totally, it's not totally nuts as an idea, yeah. I have to say. Well, do you know, I saw a documentary a wee while ago. It was one of these, uh, you know, behind-the-scenes in the Dorchester or whatever. And Will I Am did something similar where he hired, like, cases uh, and storage in the Dorchester. And That's he would, ju- Yeah, and he'd just go in and he would take what he needed and then beat so along. I, I had a friend who, um, I, um, uh, at university, who was the... Uh, he, he was, like, the grandson of some massively rich aristo. Uh-huh. And he, 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 he inherited some bloody great house in the country and he didn't want to buy a flat in London. Yeah. So he went to some five-star hotel in London and said, here's the deal. I'll give you two trunks, okay, um, of stuff. Every Tuesday evening, I want all that stuff put in my room. And then every Thursday, Thursday lunchtime or whatever, or Friday, I can't remember what it was, I want it all repacked. And I will guarantee you this many nights, three nights a week in your hotel, uh, you know, basically 50 weeks of the year. And they said to him, yeah, okay, we'll quote you a price. Okay, and he said, "Fine, I'm interested because compared, you know, it's it's you know." And he said, uh, "He said we've only got one condition before we quote you the price." He said, "What's that? You never tell anybody." Oh, and it, the conceivable thing is that, in fact, it's if you actually go to a hotel and say, "Right, I'll guarantee you this many rooms. I just want my you you can rent the room to tourists at the weekend, no problem. You can charge the rack rate. I just want it for three nights a week, and I want stuff stored." over the weekends. Yeah. And my, uh, the guy I know who, know who knows him best is actually his best mate, and he's never told him. He said he's never even told me. He's kept as good as his word. Um, but he said, all I can guess is that it's actually surprisingly cheap. Yeah, I bet it is. Because they've just got, they've, you, know, you know, they've got a guaranteed room, for, you know, occupied, you know, everything through the winter, through you know, yeah. all the time. Yeah. My guess is that most hotels are very rarely complete. I think in London occupancy rates like 65, 70%. Yeah, it's only 70, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the incremental cost of having a room is actually pretty small. I think it's about, you, you'll know this better than me, but I think it's it's sort of, depending on whether you're a five-star hotel or a travel lodge, Yeah. okay, it's somewhere between like, you know, 
eight and 25 or 30 pounds to turn over a room. Yeah. <coughs> and of course they don't even have to do that except for the third night. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so it was just interesting because um, uh, it suddenly occurred to me that there's a load of kind of spare hotel capacity in London. And I always suggested this to one of our clients, actually, Intercontinental Hotel Group. I always said, why don't you do, you know, I live in Seven Oaks, okay? So yeah. I can pretty, I, I can get a train home until about one in the morning. And to be honest, a taxi home is about a hundred quid. Yeah. But if I had a kind of app, which basically goes, you know, I pay a hundred quid a year for the privilege. And the deal is you can book a room at any of their properties at a huge discount, but only after like 11 p.m. Yeah. And my argument is, look, at 11 p.m., you're not going to rent that room out to anybody else. No. Right? No. And there's no way you're going to be 100% occupied all the time. And so I always thought, you know, for people who live just outside, Brighton would be perfect. Actually, yeah, got, huge for me. Actually, you've got 24-hour trains to Brighton, haven't you? Is that mm, right? Or do, they, they've, they've or do really... they only go to three bridges? Do they all Gatwick and yeah. three bridges, is it? Yeah. yeah. They don't go all the way to Brighton. Because that would transform Brighton, actually. If you extended the Thameslink all-night service um, to Brighton, Okay, and you know, you know, because I think you know the interesting question I always ask is why young people never move to suburbia or or move out. Yeah, and part of it is just you know the well, I always joke that you can't pull unless you live somewhere <laughs> fairly central because no one's going to come back to your place in Bromley because they think, no. geez, if this chap turns out to be a nutter, you know, I'm I'm stuck. Yeah. Whereas if you're somewhere in sort of zone three and there's a taxi outside, yeah. you can escape. Yeah. But I've always wondered about that because, uh, you know, I, by the way, I thought Kirsty Allsop's comments were absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, the only point she did make, which oh. I thought was kind of fair, is there is affordable property you can buy. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you're young and it just required basically the, the only the last remaining what you might call two hundred thousand pound property yeah that you can you can buy is basically it's flats in in kind of commuter towns yeah so if you're prepared to live in a flat in seven oaks which is effing expensive if you want a detached house yeah the actual apartments there are kind of all right not too bad you know they're actually not too bad because um, I think in my hometown in Scotland, I mean, obviously, but but it's super convenient for Glasgow. You know, you can do a lot from there. But yeah, you could pick up a flat for seventy grand. Yeah, yeah. You know, so you could still do it, but you are a bit further out. But you're twenty odd minutes on the train to Glasgow. Well, my my great argument, and I never understand why nobody says this. Okay, is that. And, and I, I suppose you've got to be quite old to realise it, okay? Mm. So if you're not into clubbing or theatre, okay, and those are the only two two things I can think of which have to be live and are location-based, or, or the dating scene, yeah. and I'll include that in that. If you're not into any of those three things, the deficit from moving out of London is much, much less than it would have been in my kind of youth or childhood. Yeah. You know, so when I was a kid, I lived in Monmouth, Welsh borders, market town, nice place. I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know claiming I'm some sort of Welsh valleys, you know, from some mining town. Okay, um, uh, the um, uh, but if you wanted to buy, you know, unusual hi-fi equipment, right? You had to go to Cardiff, Bristol, or possibly even London. Yeah. If you wanted to buy anything that was a bit weird, you know, furniture, clothing, anything like that, food, for example, you know, there was, you know. Uh, probably nobody knew what a bagel, actually nobody knew what a bagel was, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, okay. Yeah. 
Now, all of that, and it's a mixture of Tesco and the internet and Ocado and um, everything, and Gusto. Mm-hmm. But, all, and, you know, it's not like Netflix is worse in Aberystwyth than it is in central London, yeah. you know. <laughs> so the, there has been a pretty massive levelling out of all things that don't require the presence of other people. Yeah. You know, even things like digital cinema, you know, you, you go down to fairly provincial places, and, you know, you can well, actually, funnily enough, there, there are small cinemas in Kent where you could just rent the cinema and have any film you like yeah, and just invite a few mates. So if, you, if you're really into Korean cinema, yeah. you know, you can, st- and, and of course it's digital, so there's no, there's no distribution cost of reels. And it is, it is interesting to me that, because I'm very interested in the whole flexible work and remote work thing. We've just oh. hired someone who's going to continue to live in Dublin. You know, they'll pop over every now and then. Yeah. And it's, it strikes me as weird the extent to which business was so slow to cotton on to the possibilities. It was a contr- it felt like a control thing. And, like, and, I, and me being a consultant, you know, I yeah, haven't had an office for a yeah. while, mm. you know, mm. all that. But I'll tell you, people wanted to see you. So I'd have a client in, let's see, Leeds or one in Glasgow I had at one point. But they really, it, it was almost a, I don't know if it was a mistrust, but I think it was they wanted to eyeball you. You know, they wanted the comfort of you physically. And they would yeah, pay get, for you, you know. I get the fact I get the fact that they need to see you face to face. Yeah. You know, you can't have a consulting relationship, which is purely textual. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But what was interesting is I've noticed about five years before the pandemic, maybe four years, that Zoom had actually reached a level of technical technological competence where you could reliably have a call like this without without it going wrong. Yeah. You know, I mean, you get the occasional glitch, but it's basically the interesting thing was, of course, nobody would deny that a video conference is slightly worse than a face to face meeting. Yeah. I don't, you know, but on the other hand, the opportunity cost of the time you don't spend traveling. Yeah. And the opportunity cost, by the way, of not presuming that every meeting has to take up half a day of your life and also come with, you know, 180 quids worth of travel costs. Yeah, yeah. You know, and actually, you know, I quite often have these calls where someone says it's not as good as a physical meeting. And I say, yeah, but if this were to be a physical meeting, it would have taken three months to organise and it would have cost five grand because you're in Botswana, (laughs) you know, and she's in Bozeman, Montana. Yeah, yeah. And and actually, in fact, the likelihood is the meeting would never have happened. Yeah. And so there does seem to be a kind of asymmetry of perception there where we noticed the downsides of video. Mm. And until we were forced to do it, the upsides weren't very salient. Yeah. And what would yeah, you... Sorry, I was going to say, like, what, what's your view then of the of the future of it all? You know, what, what do well, you think is well, going to happen? Okay, my big, my big, big challenge, I think, is that all futurism, okay, and I mean literally every single prediction about the future, mm-hmm. okay, has assumed urbanism. Right. Okay. Now... So you get, okay, there must have been a thousand conferences about smart cities, okay? Mm-hmm. Has there been a single conference about smart suburbs or smart or smart market towns or smart commuter towns? Yeah. Um, uh, every single thing assumes that um, the entire world will be living in high-density, high-rise housing, despite quite a lot of evidence that actually rates of depression and um, mental illness like schizophrenia are significantly increased if you live in kind of high-density housing. Uh, you know, detached from normal countryside and surroundings. Yeah. And there's quite a lot of evidence people are happiest, by the way, in towns of kind of, you know, 20, 30,000 people. To be honest, okay, there's, I mean, there's not much downside to cities the size of, say, Edinburgh or 
Bright, well, certainly not Brighton, yeah. but even Edinburgh, Newcastle, right? Bristol, okay? Because yeah. basically, you you can, if you work in Bristol, you can be as urban or as rural as you like, yeah. you know? Okay, it's a choice. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem with London is London is so vast that to escape the reaches of London, you've got to go about 25 miles. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, that means that there's a, you know, there's a really, really visible trade off between commuting time and living where you want to live. Yeah. But the one thing I do, well, the one thing I do get sort of weird about is that all futurism, which I think is probably a bit heavily influenced by sci fi and things like yeah. that you know, is these massive kind of cities in the sky with higher and higher density. Yeah. And you go, well, uh, people don't like bringing up kids in that environment very much. Mm. I mean, people do, but, I mean, it's not an easy thing to do. No. Bringing up kids in a flat isn't very easy. No. Um, uh, you know, um, there are all sorts of kind of, you know, there are all sorts of reasons to question this, which is, you know, it's not as if video conferencing caught us by surprise. It's been kicking around since about, 2002 or something yeah. right i mean it, it was pretty shit to oh, me, yeah for sure I, mean, I think we've got to be honest about that even the high-end stuff was a bit crap yeah i mean even if you had your kind of video conferencing like suite, cisco cisco stuff and all that wasn't it well they brought in telepresence which was when they finally hit telepresence now, of course we didn't have high-speed broadband at home mm. there you know webcam technology all that kind of stuff was you know, we needed quite a lot of uh, what you might call a concatenation of a variety of things to happen before it became feasible. But it was feasible about four or five years before it really happened, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think it, I, I think partly in with business, a lot of business travel was like performative or normative. Yeah. It was that you had a two-hour meeting in Frankfurt. To fly to Frankfurt was the normal thing to do, and it showed willing and commitment. If you suggested a video call, it made you a bit of a weirdo, and it suggested mm -hmm. you weren't really serious. Yeah. And of course, what's happened is it's kind of phase transition where the norm has now shifted. So now if any of us had a two hour meeting in Frankfurt, we wouldn't be assuming we'd be kind of engaging British Airways. Yeah. We go, OK, do you want it on Zoom or Teams? Yeah. You know, yeah. and um, so I think I mean, I think the pandemic accelerated something that might have taken 10 years um, if, if we'd been left to our own devices. Mm -hmm. um, but it does interest me in that, you know, part of the I mean, <laughs> I've got an interesting friend who must have made quite a lot of money, bizarrely sold um, uh, kind of mortgage trading software. So okay. he was the guy behind the software, which was trading all these toxic CDOs and goodness knows what else. Um, but he made quite a lot of money. And the first thing he did in the late, I think it was the late 90s, is he went and bought some property overlooking some lake in Nevada. Because mm -hmm. his great prediction about the internet was, well, nobody's going to want to live in a city anymore because... If you have this, you know, widespread access, if your geographical location becomes less important, he thought that San Francisco prices would fall uh -huh. and that Nevada prices next to a lake would go up. Okay. Right. Now, my contention was that he was unbelievably spectacularly wrong. Okay. <laughs> had he bought had he bought some bloody shack in San Francisco, he would have made millions. Yeah, yeah. Between nineteen ninety-eight and two thousand and 18 yeah okay but he might have been right in the long term mm -hmm. in other words he might have been one of those people where you're right but um you know, we all we all predicted didn't we i guess that yeah. you know um uh, you, you know that um there are various things about the internet we all predicted that never happened 
um, you know, uh, there was always hyper-local. Was, I mean, you know, micropayments never really happened, mm. you know. And I think that's probably a behavioural obstacle, not a technological obstacle when you yeah. boil it all down. And I think with video conferencing, business video conferencing, our kids were doing it, FaceTime and so on. But I think with that, but I do think there's a fundamental question, which is that... Um, uh, if you look at office work, I mean, this sounds awful. I'm not, I'm not having this big whinge about, isn't it terrible to work at a desk? You know, I wish I could be, a, you know, do something dangerous like scaffolding or something <laughs> really, really dotty like nursing in a pandemic. I'm not yeah. saying that. But the one thing about office work is it did assume there was absolutely no opportunity for flexibility. No. So once you got into that line of employment, it was Monday to Friday, you know, basically, you, you know, nine to five, four to five journeys a week. Mm-hmm. And it occurred to me that we were unknowingly turning our back on a hell of a lot of talent. Now, you know, carers would be one group, people, or people, mums with kids, okay, were kind of artificially frozen out of the workplace for a period because of the assumption that your physical presence was effectively a non-negotiable part of your employment. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, even, even further than that, I mean, it was very interesting, Helen Waitley, who's the MP for... Um, Faversham, she brought in this bill which basically said that jobs will be assumed to be flexible unless the advertisement has a good reason to state otherwise. And it was quite an interesting behaviourally informed piece of legislation designed just to change the default. Mm -hmm. And the thing that surprised her, she did it very much with kind of working mums in mind or working dads, working parents in mind. So the interesting thing, the interesting thing is she then says, okay, this is a, you know, this is legislation very much with working parents and perhaps carers in mind. Yeah. And Sure enough, those people were pretty much enthused by the prospect when it was researched. But to her great surprise, she suddenly she found huge pockets of completely different demographics, including older blokes. Yeah. And it occurred to me that mo- if you think about the older bloke dilemma, okay, which is that, um, or actually the older working person dilemma, mm-hmm. then no need, but it was particularly blokes. Most people don't retire because they want to stop work. They retire because they want to stop commuting. Yeah. You know, you're some accountant, you've got a, you know, you've got a small cottage overlooking a golf course in Portugal. Yeah. Okay. You now, and then you get to this thing when you're about 60 to 65. And I only realized this when I became 50, what am I now? 56. Yeah. Okay. Which is this whole idea of working until retirement and stopping. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is a massive bet on your having good health or even surviving between let's say 63 and 73. Mm-hmm. It's a huge one-way bet on your having a healthy 10 years of retirement. Yeah. And in, you know, one in 10 cases, you know, either you're beset by some illness or, you know, a quarter of your life is dedicated to medical treatment, which can happen, Mm -hmm. or you die. Okay. It's a very, very one-way bet when you do that work and then quit. And what I suspected is, is that a hell of a lot of people at a certain age don't want to commute anymore. They're perfectly capable of doing valuable work. What they really want to do is taper off a yeah. bit. Yeah. So there's a bit of a trade-off between, well, if my health holds up, I'll keep on working. I can stop now if I need to, but I'll keep on going, but not five days a week and don't expect me to get on a train at seven o'clock in the morning. Um, and so that's, that's just a really interesting thing where technology, the real lag in technology isn't actually technological. It's in people conceiving the new mindset. Yeah sufficiently enough to take advantage of what it offers yeah there's quite a, uh, quite a few things to unpack there in like one yeah 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 oh, no no i mean because we've just we've just i mean there's a really great russian soviet era uh-huh. innovation approach called tris 
and they and their general series of generalizations about how you innovate and I, I can't remember all of them because they're about 60 or something but two of them are separate two things which have previously been bundled together mm-hmm. or join together two things which have previously been considered separate yeah and one of the things that's very interesting in your field which is um it, the whole restaurant industry okay what the pandemic did was what we saw suddenly explode in the pandemic is some really weird businesses so gusto and hello fresh really mm-hmm. fascinating yeah and they partly fascinate because I like to think of myself as a reasonably innovative, experimental person. But when I heard about Gusta, I couldn't get my head around it at all. I yeah. get, I've got recipe books in the kitchen. Okay, yeah. um, I've got an Accardo account. I've got a Sainsbury's click and collect account. Get recipe, order ingredients, make food. What the hell does Gusto offer by simply repackaging, repackaging those separate things in choose dish, have ingredients delivered, yeah. eat, cook. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and I met, I think it was Timo, the founder, I think I actually met. And he said, oh, I'll send you a box. Now, I was kind of going, I don't know what the hell this is all about. <laughs> but I'm not going to say, look, I don't want your stinking box of food, yeah. right? Okay. I'm a reasonably polite guy. And it was, you know. And now we had the box, the first box delivered. And we've had a box delivered for every single week, bar two, for the next something like 80 weeks. Wow. And this is a complete, it's a complete. Now, the other thing that really interests me, have you come across this website called Dish Patch? Yes. I've seen uh, the ads in Facebook. Yeah. It's extraordinary because it's London restaurant. Now, the only thing, this is interesting. Now, actually, Brighton's got a pretty damn good, actually, in terms of food scene and stuff, and actually in terms of clubbing scene, you probably don't actually have much of a deficit in Brighton over London, actually. Mm. In fact, Brightonians consider themselves cooler than Londoners. We do. Don't they? We do, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but the only thing I do miss having missed, moved out of London is their certain kind of niche ethnic foods. Gotcha. Not Indian, because actually they're great Indian restaurants all over the place. But kind of Korean, Lebanese, um, Malaysian, that kind of stuff, yeah. you're not going to find it quite adequately, you know, in once you get outside a megacity kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. And, of course, what Dish Patch does is the restaurants, I, 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 I'm, I'm kind of, trying to work it out, kind of trying to reverse engineer it. But one of my real favourites, do you know Roti King in Doric yes, Way? Yes, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, Roti King is on dispatch. So mm. you can get like six rotis, chicken curry, dal, delivered. It's like 20 quid. Now, it's quite expensive, but yeah. it's cheaper than going out for a meal. And the other thing, the other discovery I made is actually you have it over two nights. So you don't sit down and have a massive blurt. Actually, you have... And I, uh, there's also, uh, funnily enough, that, that Ogilvy works with them a little bit, a company called UB Chef, okay. which is a, Mich- it's a Michelin-starred restaurant on the Isle of Wight. And during the pandemic, they completely reinvented themselves around delivering, um, uh, uh, effectively delivering um, pre-made uh, Michelin-starred food, where, which just requires effectively heating in some instances and plating up at home. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And funnily enough, I discovered actually having a third of a Michelin starred meal spread over three evenings yeah. is actually more enjoyable than having one Michelin starred meal in the same evening. Yeah. That makes sense. Which kind of makes sense. Because yeah. the if you take the peak end rule, the Daniel Kahneman thing, mm-hmm. right? 
you know, the, um, you you remember a meal for the most amazing thing in it to some extent, yeah. right? Yeah. And so if you have three evenings a week where your meal includes one amazing component, yeah. you've actually more or less had three amazing meals. Yep, yep. And so, so that really, really interests me. And then you have this whole business of centralized kitchens. You have dark kitchens. Then you have centres which serve tend to serve consumers. You have centralised kitchens which serve restaurants. So the restaurants can dedicate more of their surface area to diners and less to actual food preparation. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, if you look at Dish Patch and you look at UB Chef, what it's doing is we always assumed that you prepared food, you heated food, mm -hmm. and you consumed food at the same location. Yep. And what this is effectively saying is there's one thing I don't have any deficiency of at home. I have a deficiency of talent, and I may have a deficiency of ingredients, mm -hmm. but I don't have a deficiency of equipment that can heat shit up. Okay, right? <laughs> and so that interesting thing where actually the preparation and the heating mm -hmm. become two separate operations that take place at separate locations is really interesting. Yeah. Well, interestingly, on one of the episodes that will be around about the time when this goes out, is uh, from My Supper Hero, which is a new business that's just started. So it's Jamie Barber, who owns um, Hush, Mayfair, and um, what else? Uh, Hashi Burger and things like that. But he's just started it with Mylene Class, uh, the, the singer and the, the celebrity. Yeah. So, so My Supper Hero, I've got it here. Yeah. Eats brilliantly at home. Yeah. And it's like super high-end meal kits, is it? Well, it's it's almost done. It's pretty much done for you. So it's just a could take you maybe ten minutes just to fling it together. It's so it's not it's less. Oh, and they've work. got they've got they're clever people. They've got membership pricing. So if you join, you yeah. get a discount on every meal and presumably free delivery or something. Yeah. So I've I've just joined it, but I had my first one the other night, and it was salmon bow buns with the uh, you know sort of like uh, sort of peanut and a. a quinoa salad and all that. It was absolutely delicious. Brilliant. And it was cheap, so this, you know? Well, this isn't totally correct. These prices, these are prices per person, admittedly, minimum two people. Mm -hmm. <coughs> but this is actually, of course, you know, when you go out to a restaurant, you spend a load of money on, on high markup wine. So you yeah. save quite a bit of money that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also you can watch telly and sit in your underpants, which is generally, <laughs> that's generally frowned at at the higher, higher end of Michelin establishments. Yeah, so casual, uh, this, casual, casual dining, you get away with it. But it's quite funny where, um, with, with, with what Jamie's doing, it's just slightly different. So you've got your finish at home, everything's done, mm. you've, which is you know a lot more expensive and things like that. Then you've got yeah. your meal kits, like you say, and then there's just that kind of Venn diagram, kind of in the middle. I suppose Deliveroo's in the mix as well. And, and just I'm just seeing this no? miso salmon and bao yeah, buns with sticky teriyaki, oh. sticky teriyaki roast broccoli. Oh, it was phenomenal. Because I absolutely love, I mean, it's really weird. I think it's because I'm kind of a, um, I always approach business with the mindset of an evolutionary. Uh, 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 I try and approach business with the mindset of a Darwin, not a Newton. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I always think that most people look at business as if they try and make it deterministic. Yeah. And they try and, they try and reduce everything to components. And I always go, no, 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 it's not that. It's a science of how things change, not how things remain the same. And it's effectively, it's about the understanding of systems, not the understanding of, you know, independent variables. Yeah. Because, because patently, by actually separating a business into component parts and into component silos, you actually lose 
the real magic, which is created by the interplay between these different things. I've just noticed by the way, Stilton and caramelized red onion beef pie. <laughs> Shit, the bad. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's really okay. good. Yeah, this is this is pretty goddamn amazing. Yeah, get one. Um, and so uh, there's a Sunday roast collection. Connection that's pretty clever as well. Mm. Um, but no, what's so interesting? Now I, I suspect, by the way, the market for this will be basically rich suburban and rural punters. Yeah. Okay. Um, because in London, you might argue, well, Deliveroo and Uber Eats can kind of do you this. But then on the other hand, the food kind of arrives warm, not hot, doesn't it? Yep. There's a certain logic to heating the food at home, because at home I've got an air fryer, a microwave, and a bloody oven. Yeah. Okay? You know, I'm not short of, you know, heating capacity. Mm. I'm just short of talent. <laughs> and um, <laughs> um, But this really, it really interests me, because it's a classic triz. So, you know, this Soviet era outsola idea where you, you, everybody's always assumed that one thing is done at the same place as something else. Mm-hmm. And that the two components are actually connected. And this form of innovation just comes about by splitting them into two. Yeah. And of course, what's interesting about it, it's similar to, if you like, what you see with the potential for video conferencing which is how do you arrange a business when you no longer assume co-location? Mm-hmm. And there's a paper actually written by an economist called Noah Smith. And he, he now the, the really interesting thing is another economist called Robert Gordon, who's the biggest tech skeptic going. Mm-hmm. He always says, you know, uh, uh, um, that actually all this technology has been invested in in huge quantities, but it hasn't increased productivity that much. You know, the, the, the technolo- technology's Im- improvement in productivity has not delivered the promise that the IT industry sells it on. Yeah. And Gordon is a mega skeptic. There's another guy who says you can see the growth of IT everywhere except in the productivity statistics. Yeah. Okay. Now, the interesting thing there is that Gordon is actually quite an optimist for Zoom, as is Noah Smith. And their argument is a thing called distributed service sector productivity. Mm-hmm which is that when you no longer assume that things have to be co-located, so industry had to be co-located partly because of the presence of coal or essential raw materials, and also because manufacturing ran off one sodding great F-off steam engine. And you had belts going, going from all those rotating things, and you had massive rotating things going through the factory. The steam engine ran all the time, all the power you used, all the machines were running 24 hours a day because the steam engine was. And when they electrified, what they first did was they just replaced the steam engine with an electric motor. Yeah. And there was no improvement in safety and there was no improvement in productivity, really, unless you happened to have a factory next to a source of hydroelectric power or some really cheap source of electricity. Yeah. And the economic paper points out that the productivity gains from electrification came like 30, 40, 50 years later when people worked out, we don't have to have all this happening in the same place. The machines don't have to be turned on all the time. We don't have to effectively make our, uh, you know, we don't have to make the car seats in the same place that we assemble the cars. Yeah. And we can actually, you know, effectively diversify. Now I think in service industries, he thinks, and I kind of I buy this thing, mm-hmm. he thinks there's an opportunity for the same sort of explosion in productivity, which happens when you actually effectively restructure and relocate an organization to take advantage of, of, of uh, different people with different skills. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you might see a bit more of a gig economy. I said to someone jokingly, I said, you know, I, I quite like the idea of a gig economy because I'm the kind of person who you'd probably want to hire for an hour, but you wouldn't want to hire for a fucking year. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you wouldn't want me. You know, if you're an insurance company, a bank, you wouldn't want, want me around the place for flaming, no. you know, 200 days a year. I'd just start dicking everything up and making, <laughs> making the whole thing a total disaster. But I can be quite valuable for an hour, yeah. you know, which says, don't look at it like this. Look at it like that. Yeah. And what? You know? and just while we're on this, we're pulling at this thread on, on technology and stuff. What about apps and restaurant apps? Because it's so interesting with what you're saying. We are, I think we're guilty of this in the in the hospitality industry where we will say that you need humans and it's all about humans and, and all the rest of it. But actually, statistics that come out lately from Deloitte, I think it was, said 67% of people preferred uh, ordering on an app. But that, that's... A- yeah, that's a really interesting question, which is, uh, I, I mean, there's a, there, the, the perfect answer um, comes from KFC in France. Now, KFC in France had an intermediate period. Uh, you're, you're obsessed with fast food restaurants as well, aren't you? Oh, that's for your, sure. You're Scottish. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, exactly. <laughs> but also, also, it's, I regard it as like, a, it's like, it's like a Darwinian ecosystem, the whole food, the whole food industry. It's utterly fascinating. Oh, yeah. And it's, you know, huge applications for behavioural science. So what they had at one stage in KFC in France, which they found really good, I don't know if they've replaced it now with the screens where you just order and pay at the screen, but they had this weird system where you, quite often I think, you know, maybe the the people didn't speak brilliant French, um, you know, behind the counter. Mm -hmm. And what you did was you, you assembled your order on a screen and then you printed out your order and you handed it over to the guy. And then he would charge you and assemble the bargain bucket and the tower and the zinger wrap and so forth. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And the gravy, yeah, the gravy which is hotter, hotter than the sun, <laughs> you know? Okay. Now, um, so he, now what they found that was really beneficial about that. And I really like this was that when the restaurant was really busy, you just handed the thing over, paid the money, waited. When the restaurant was a bit quiet, mm. the time that the person had previously spent going, do you want fries with that? And, you know, do you want to, you know, uh, you know, do, do you want a couple of chicken strips? And basically dealing with the orders, mm. okay, was replaced with banter and chit chat. Okay. You know, so people actually said, you know, blah, 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 here it is. Yeah, super, okay, I've got that. Right, we'll do this. Uh, did you see the match last night? And so the bit that you wanted automated was automated. And the bit that you wanted to be personal was personal. And I think that actually Japan is like that. The weird thing about Japan is it's like the highest tech country in the world. But you go to a department store in Japan, and there are people paid to bow to you. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I went. In, I went. In, I went into Kyoto railway station, and mm. there was like the biggest bank of high tech ticket machines you could see. But you know, not unreasonably, I was you know not totally familiar with the yeah, work. So yeah. I actually there were loads of guys standing around being really polite and helpful. Yeah. And I think, I think what we often get wrong in business, and I, I think this is a truth which is actually generalizable, is that the right answer is more of the two extremes. And what we mentally look for is an optimal halfway house. Mm. And by the way, that's true of work. I've often said this, that the, the, the open plan office is neither solitude nor is it sociability. Mm-hmm. What you want from a working relationship is 50% of the time hiding away in a, you know, the equivalent of a shed yeah, where you can't done. be disturbed. And 50% of the time it's high fives and chatter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And actually the, the open plan office attempted to find a halfway house between those two states and actually provided the benefits of neither. Mm. And I think what's really interesting is that 
to be quite honest, what we often want from an experience is high automation at certain points of the journey and high touch. You know, quite often you might choose a hotel or holiday online, but you just want somebody on the phone to go, is it dog friendly? Because the website is not, you know, I don't actually have a dog, so that's yeah. a hypothetical, okay, that's a hypothetical question. But there's always one or two questions, you know, and actually having that little bit of personal interaction from time to time is actually quite pleasant. And we can't, you know, and it's worth noting that, you know, um, most technology is designed by introverts for introverts mm-hmm. who are inclined to miss some of that. And so I think what we like is the two extremes. I think we like a cardo and we also like Deal High Street where you walk. I mean, literally you walk along Deal High Street and you can get all your shopping done. It just requires visiting 12 shops. Yeah. And every single one of them is a hello. How are you? And, you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, I tell you, just when you say that, do you know uh, who's got a great strap line lately uh, is Gorillas. You know, the the supermarket thing. Yeah. Strap line, we're faster than you. What an brilliant. Brilliant. It was like, oh, mm. come on. It's rare mm. that you see mm. something so true and so pithy these days. And by the way, that's absolutely true of shopping. There are two more. I, I think what the best thing I ever learned from a futurologist, I think it's fantastic, he said, Everybody talks about trends. Mm. And he said, there aren't trends, there are vectors. And actually, vectors tend to be there's a trend and there's a counter trend. And we tend to talk about the trend that either has more technology involved Uh or which is more salient because it's weirder. Mm. But the best thing I ever heard from any futurologist, and I I can't remember who it was because I'd love to credit them, is just there aren't trends, there are vectors. There's a trend and there's a counter trend in the opposite direction. And actually what we see in all kinds of things is that I would say there are two great ways to check into a hotel, right? There's basically my phone is my key. Yeah. You know, so I basically go, yeah, I'll have that room. Oh, I'll upgrade. Yeah, that's fine. While I'm in the taxi to the hotel. And then you walk straight in, beep, open the door and sit down and have a poo. Okay. (laughs) Right. And then the other one is, I think it was the Mandarin Oriental in Hong Kong, where they take you up to your room. They make you a cup of green tea, a pot of green tea. It's not a cup. It's a pot. Okay. And you sit down at your desk to fill in the paperwork. So you're not left standing at a, at a reception desk. Yeah. Every single person is checked in by being taken to their room. The person shows them how the television works. Ideally shows them how the shower works because oh, that's yeah. a <laughs> random. In, you know. yeah. Okay. And, and um, so I think, I think what this great thing is, is that actually the great mistake I think about economics, and a lot of business thinking is it always assumes there's a single right answer that's somewhere in the middle. Mm. And the right on this team Taleb taught me this, which is, he has an investment strategy, which he calls the barbell, okay? Mm-hmm. And the point about the barbell is you don't bother with the middle, okay? You put 80% of your money in like treasury bonds. In other words, where you're never going to lose it and you're going to get a little bit of interest. And then you take the 20% you can afford to lose and you put it into things which, which have a finite downside. Mm-hmm. In other words, the worst that can happen is you lose all your money, but where the upside is asymmetrically potentially limitless. You know, that's kind of like investing in, in Broadway shows where you get four total disasters. But if you invest in cats, you know, if you'd invested in cats, you probably, you know, retired on the proceeds. Oh, until the movie came out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the worst thing that happened to cats since Dogs, as yeah. Ricky Gervais quoted. Yeah. Oh, was that what it was? <laughs> <laughs> that's in Ricky Gervais's Golden Globe speech. Yeah, oh. One reviewer described cats as the worst thing to happen to cats since Dogs. Um, but... But the really interesting thing there is I think 
you know, I always say, you know, that, that there's usually a counter answer. You know, there's the Dyson and there's the Henry, you know, mm-hmm. in vacuum cleaners. Um, and I, I'm always, I'm, I'm, I'm always just really interested in this because I think, um, uh, you know, I, I'm quite excited by this discovery that you actually order a gastronomic meal but don't consume it all in one go. Yeah. Um, I, I genuinely find that quite an interesting, and it's actually quite a healthy approach, I suspect, yeah. as well. Um, and I kind of made that discovery by accident. And I spoke to other people who use UB Chef, and they said they found out they'd done the same thing, and they felt a bit guilty doing it because they thought, no, 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 this meal has been curated. Yeah. But they said it was just a more enjoyable way to do it. And... Um, I'm also, you know, I mean, you know, things like um, Roti King, That's which is, you know, one of my favourite restaurants in London, but there's always a massive queue. Yeah. You know, I think they've started taking credit cards finally. I mean, I was a cash only oh, restaurant. <laughs> but I, I had this 20 quid delivery of rotis, chicken curry and dal, uh, which kept me pretty, you know, kept me and my wife pretty happy over two evenings. Yeah. yeah. Actually, okay, it's 20 quid, but that's, you know, that's okay. You know, you, you know, and I'm, you know, for two evening meals, um, uh, for two, that's, mm. yeah, that's getting tolerable. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think, by the way, one of the things we need is we need a nationwide equivalent of that um, Mumbai uh, Tiffined box delivery service. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I'd love to see and, and where I think you need government or someone huge is an open access network of lockers. And they could even be chilled. You could even have chilled lockers if you mm-hmm. wanted for food. Okay. I guess you could have hot lockers conceivably. Yeah. yeah. Interesting one. I've always argued. I don't. I don't know. Am I right in this? Because I've never lived in a place where KFC or McDonald's delivered. I can't get my head around having McDonald's delivered, but I wouldn't mind having KFC delivered. Is it the spicier food doesn't suffer so much from? I don't know. McDonald's travels okay. I mean, we, we get all, we get all okay. the time. We get all the time. But uh, there's, yeah. there's, we're just kind of lazy. As there's one at the top of the road, but it's uh, a. <laughs> Yeah, just eat, deliver it. That's usually breakfast we order, actually. Um, usually yeah, 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 because you can't actually, stuff. actually, the, the, okay, to be honest, the bacon and egg muffin, if it was served by a Michelin star restaurant, we'd, we'd regard it as a piece of genius. Oh, yeah, we? absolutely. It's a magnificent, magnificent thing. Oh, it's brilliant. Um, and um, no, so you, you, McDonald's actually works being delivered. I mean, it's yeah, I, I've always had this vague idea that it would just seem incongruous to have a McDonald's delivered. No, Whereas KFC, up. I could get my head around that. Yep, no, it holds no. up, holds up. Maybe, maybe it is, the, you know, maybe it's you're tricked into having a zinger, therefore you think it's hot because of the yeah. spice. you know, maybe. because of the spice, yeah. Maybe. I, I always have spicy food on a plane because Indian food holds up to being kept in a tray for three hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually possibly is improved by the experience. Um, so it, whenever there's a curry on the plane, and there's no other option. That's um, the tip. But it's such an interesting business. I mean, I find it so fascinating because, first of all, I mean, we were talking about this in this whole uh, process of recruitment, mm-hmm. uh, of, of of doing an advertising campaign to recruit people for the hospitality industry. Mm-hmm. Because one of the virtues is it's totally meritocratic. Yeah. Okay. You know, I mean, you know, you you can, okay, in theory, maybe in practice, it happens in practice. You can kind of start at the drive-through window and make your way to the boardroom. You know, you can start in, you know, fairly junior role in a hotel and work your way up to general manager. It's completely meritocratic. So, so many examples. I mean, a one a great example is uh, the C, global CEO of Pret, Pano, yeah. Pano Christo, and used to work with him when I was there. He started off, I think he was maybe an assistant manager, maybe he was just, you know, on the floor. And 
19 years later, global CEO. And global Brett CEO, yeah. are basically mm-hmm. saying, like, no management school in the world would have got no. you that job. You, you ha- has to come from within, you know? I mean, McDonald's and Burger King do the thing where if you want to work as a lawyer uh, for McDonald's, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I had actually a, a friend's brother went to Harvard Law School and I think applied to become a corporate lawyer at McDonald's and they will put you through the whole training of how to basically clean and um, a mm-hmm. thick shape machine. Mm-hmm. And they say, that's our business. If you don't understand how that works, you can't work for us. There used to be this fantastic thing in the 80s, or maybe it was the early 90s, when if you're Grand Metropolitan at the time owned Burger King, Mm -hmm. and the Burger King policy was... If you're if you if you're involved with Burger King, you had to spend two days a year working at a Burger King restaurant. Mm-hmm. So apparently, in like 1990, you could go along to the Burger King at Victoria Station, okay, for two days of the year, and Lord Gowrie, who is a non-executive director of Grand <laughs> Metropolitan, would actually serve you your Whopper, which I that was fantastic. But I mean, that's that business where you know. <coughs> I also love the fact, which I always tell people, because it's a weird story that affects how you think of the whole business, that Colonel Sanders was 65 when he founded um, KFC. Or yeah, Kentucky, that Magic. blows your mind, doesn't it? Blows your mind, doesn't it? He spent yeah. his entire, not his entire life, but a large Most part of the second half of his life perfecting the 11 spice herbs and spices, yeah, yeah. whatever. And, uh, and also inventing the whole technique. And then at 65, he had the idea of franchising it. Now, I don't know how common the franchise arrangement was then, whether he invented the franchise arrangement. I don't quite know. Yeah. What was that, late 50s? Uh, yeah, I guess he would. Uh, when, when would it be? Yeah, yeah, because he, he was born. He, he survived till 90 something, didn't he? And he, wow. um, I, I met someone who'd met him. Ooh. One of the funniest things you can see, actually, you can date how late it got big because there's a late 1950s on YouTube, there's a late 1950s episode of What's My Line. You remember that old American yeah. panel show, okay, yeah. where you have to guess what the person's job is. Uh-huh. And Colonel Saunders, right? Who walks in with a goatee beard with a book the whole thing. again? And within a millisecond of the guy walking in, you go, Shit, it's Colonel Sons. And there are four people trying to guess what he does. Wow, someone that like most, most and it's the famous most surreal, Elvis. Yeah, it's the most surreal television you'll ever see because it, it, would, it would be like having Elvis walk in and a lot of people going, Are You in any way connected with the music industry? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> can, can you sing? <laughs> can, you, can you maybe sing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Jesus, that's and crazy. So, so go and look for it on YouTube because I, I watch it. It's so funny. I watch it about once, you know, those YouTube clips yeah. which you rather tragically watch about once a month. Yeah, yeah absolutely. My, you, my YouTube viewing, I love, I love YouTube because my viewing is like 10%. Yale lectures on behavioural science <laughs> and 90% people falling off things. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the worst one for me is uh, Instagram Reels at the moment. Like, yeah. if I get onto a loop there, that's, that's an hour gone. Yeah, it is, it is absolutely. Yeah, it's a total time vampire. Oh, um, but actually, it's worth getting um, YouTube Premium if you've got a smart TV uh-huh. and you've got a YouTube app on the TV. It's worth paying for YouTube Premium. Well, that, that's you know, good. You don't have the ads at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we actually, during lockdown, we, as a family, and I discovered a lot of other families did the same thing. They got into really niche programming. There was one family who got obsessed with something like a donkey cam, which was just a live camera on YouTube of some donkeys. (laughs) And they kind of go into, they go into dinner and say, you know, 
Ned or whatever his name is has just been a bit upset because he didn't get as much food as some other donkey. Oh we we got into watching the weirdest thing, which was it's it's called I'm just trying to Matt's RV reviews. Uh-huh. And it's American RV salesman reviewing all the latest enormous American motorhomes. <laughs> and I, I never quite know. I, I kind of, I think all Brits kind of regard all American motorhomes as a slight fantasy object, don't they? Yeah. But watching these reviews of, you know, every single detail of the Televator, I mean, most of them, by the way, and this is mid-range ones, okay, have an outdoor television. Okay, so you open a great flap on the outside of the RV, and there's a ruddy great flat screen TV there, so you can watch TV out of doors. Have you ever done like, it? Have you ever hired one? No, and done the thing? no. I, I'm, I'm tempted. Have you done it? I've no, been tempted. No, no. I, I think I will. I think I will actually. Um, but because actually, you know, as a way to do, say, Texas and the American West, Arizona, New Mexico, yeah, 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 it'd be pretty fantastic. Oh, that mm. would be amazing. Yeah, and we'll, it just on that, do you know what? There's a couple of things I've realized. One is I haven't introduced you at all, so I'll do that later. Oh, don't worry, yeah, we can do, that, do that. And then also, um, yeah, we haven't asked any questions whatsoever of what we're going to do. Um, so there was a, a couple of things, um, you know, I was just kind of thinking about, and it was really for your job, you know. I guess, you know, you're a behavioural economist, you've got other titles and all the rest of it, but how do you describe what it is that you do sort of every day? Yeah, you know, how are you in the I position mean, the, you're in, you know? The great thing about, I've got two little perks. The great thing is that the vice chairman job is gloriously ambiguous, okay, <laughs> and ill-defined. And by the way, I, I feel a bit guilty about this because I think there should be relatively more jobs um, that are less well-defined mm. in, in organisations. And it's always very difficult because if you're not now, the way I buy a degree of autonomy is that I do speaking engagements. And when I'm paid for the speaking engagements, the money goes to Ogilvy. Mm -hmm. So as a product of that, I'm one of the cheapest vice chairman you could imagine because, you know, that money goes straight to the bottom line. Yeah. And so they quite like having me around for that. And uh, there's an argument, which is there's a, there's a role in kind of, I think, in HR philosophy, which is a person called a plant. Yes. And the and the point is that the value of the person is not in what they specifically do, yeah. but as a kind of catalyst to other people doing things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think we've become too reductionist in our view of, you know, what's your job description, who is your direct report, what are your metrics? Yeah. Because there's a certain amount of stuff you can do that adds value that defies easy categorization. Mm -hmm. And my argument is, I think there should be a few more people at Ogilvy doing random, with the freedom to do random stuff. Yeah. And my argument, the way I describe that is, look, a lot of the things I do do not have an immediate payoff, and nor are they intended to. You know, I'm on a podcast now. Okay. Mm -hmm. What's the point? I'm not being paid for the podcast. And my argument is, well, I'm spending an hour of my time, and I'm talking to 500 people. One of those 500 people, either over the next three years, may need somebody who can do the kind of shit we do yeah. or may know somebody who does. Yeah. And my argument there is all I'm doing is a probabilistic act of increasing my surface area exposure to good fortune. Yes. That's it. I don't have an, int it's rather like going to a party, right? My daughter's 
don't go to a party with a party strategy, right? They don't go, what am I going to get out of this party? You know, uh, okay, here are my three priorities for this party. You go to parties to increase your chances of getting lucky. Now, it could be romantically, sexually. It could be that you get invited to a better party. Mm-hmm. All my daughters know, and this is where FOMO comes from, is if I don't go, I'll never get lucky. Yeah. They don't know how they're going to get lucky. They don't know specifically. They don't have a plan for how you're going to get lucky. But they basically have an inherent kind of 20-year-old mentality, which is if I put myself out there, good shit might happen. I'm exposed to opportunity. Okay. And opportunity is in in itself a positive because you can take it or leave it. Okay. If you're invited to a really cool party next week because you go to a party this Saturday, you don't have to go to the party next week, but Mm -hmm. you now have an opportunity to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I argue that quite a lot of business, actually, most of business is actually probabilistic. And most effort in business is put towards pretending that it isn't. Yeah. Most effort in business is constructing frameworks and metrics and spreadsheets under the pretense that what you have in business is this kind of deterministic planned thing. Now, the reason we think that is because it's much, it's very easy to post-rationalize the past. Mm -hmm. And so we look at the past, we construct a story as to why uh, we were successful. Okay. Despite the fact that most of that success was luck. Okay. All right. And we think, therefore, mistakenly, that the fu- that because it's easy to post-rationalise the past, it's equally easy to pre-rationalise the future. Yeah. And, of course, as COVID teaches us, I mean, it, it sometimes, it, for a six-month time horizon, a one-year time horizon, yeah, you can basically go next year's probably going to be like last year with bells on. Yeah. You know? And you can do that in the short term, but in the long term, it's not a safe approach. Mm. And you have to actually diversify because you don't know where your good fortune is going to come from. And I always think that business of doing things which just increase your surface area exposure to upside opportunity is a perfectly valid thing. And, you know, maybe 10, 20 percent of people should be doing that or or everybody should be doing it for 20 percent of their time. Well, it's really it's really funny. You see that there's quite a few examples of that. One is. Uh, I did a podcast uh, and actually I appeared on his show as well with Gary Vee. Gary ah, yeah, I'm always in, I'm always intrigued by him because yeah. he's the most polarizing man in marketing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, he's great. I, I like him a lot. But we um, so I did a podcast stuff, and I saw I spoke to him, and I said, "Why are you doing this? You know why?" And he said a similar thing, and he said, "Look, I'm meeting you. You're you know in food and drink. The person that you know, he goes, if you ever want me to come to a meeting, I'll come with you. He goes, just here's my phone number. Tell me." And I think it was genuine, you know, half genuine, you know. And then he said, I'll be in a meeting with a junior that then becomes the Budweiser marketing director eventually. Yeah, he's, yeah. Now, of course, the other interesting thing is because he owns his own company. So he's thinking long term. Yeah. Okay. The other thing is that in direct, I learned it because in direct marketing, there aren't that many people. This is where I spent most of my kind of formative years. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still a direct marketer. That's how I, you know, I consider, you know, I mean, you know, Behavioral science is, is direct marketing with bells on to yeah, an extent. Yeah. And most people didn't have a direct marketing budget. So you had to persuade them to do direct marketing before you could persuade them to use you. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, with, and with advertising, there were people swilling around who basically had a few million pounds to spend. You never had that luxury in direct marketing. You had to create the market before you could actually um, occupy it. 
And funnily enough, Drayton Bird, who is the direct marketing guru, mm-hmm. always had a big row with David Ogilvy about this because David Ogilvy thought that public speaking was a total waste of time. And he said, I love Drayton Bird, venerate the guy, but he spends far too much of his time doing public speaking engagements. And I, I remember seeing Drayton, seeing David Ogilvy say this on a, see this on a film. He, mm. I only met him once. Um, I was going to ask, actually, if you'd met yeah, him. I yeah, did, I did meet him, yeah, once. He came over and I dated because he was terrified of flying. It was shortly after the Eurostar had opened mm. and he of course was living in france and he wasn't really happy about flying to the uk but once the Eurostar opened he took the train over and i met him then in the london office was he scottish a scottish guy yeah well he was born in guilf he was born in he's scottish in the same way that i'm a, you know i think he was half scottish half irish if i'm right right, right, right. actually by ancestry I, I think i've got that right uh-huh. Uh, he was actually the the uncle of Ian Ogilvy, the actor, who was considered for the role of James Bond, by the way, oh. another interesting connection. Okay. And his father, I mean, they were from the Ogilvy, some sort of aristocratic Ogilvy family originally. His father had fallen on hard times. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but he was... He made a great deal of the Scottishness. I mean, you know, I think I think he considered himself Scottish. Yeah. And he, he wore a kilt occasionally and that kind of stuff. Like Rod Stewart. Can I let Rod Stewart? Uh, yeah, yeah. And of course, like like many proud Scots, lived nowhere near Scotland. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've went as far away as I possibly could. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, true of Rod Stewart, true of uh, Sean Connery, etc. Yeah, they're all uh, Billy Connolly. Yeah. But, you know, and that's true of Scousers, isn't it? You know, you don't actually see Paul McCartney in Liverpool all that yeah. much. Not much. You know, <laughs> no, uh, Surrey is full of really, really proud scousers. But um, <laughs> but it, it is. But you no, know, he undoubtedly, you know, undoubtedly was, uh, uh, you know, obsessed with I think, you know, Scottish ancestry and, mm. and culture and so forth. And of course, it was quite a marketable commodity in the U in the US For in sure. the nineteen uh, in the nineteen fifties and uh, and later. Um, and um, he had a brother who was really. Ogilvy London always considered Francis Ogilvy to be the instrumental Ogilvy because his brother was the, I think the effect, effectively ran, uh, was it S.H. Benson? I think, oh no, Mather and Crowther. Sorry, his brother ran an agency oh, called yeah. Mather and Crowther. Funded David Ogilvy, his brother, who'd been at Gallup to start that agency in New York, which was then called Ogilvy and Mather, or it might be called Ogilvy Benson and Mather at one point, but it was definitely called Ogilvy and Mather. That, um, and what happened is the New York office was so successful that it ended up buying a, a kind of reverse takeover uh, of the parent company. Yeah. And then I think I'm right, then Mather and Crowther bought S.H. Benson, which was a kind of British Empire era network, which yeah. was, you know, Calcutta, Karachi, Melbourne, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Auckland. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was that, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, when you look at Ogilvy, okay, the the... You know, the, the survival and success of Ogilvy is partly down to various elements of good fortune and randomness. So, interestingly, David Ogilvy um, won American Express. Now, that made De- Ogilvy a direct marketing business. We wouldn't, have been, we wouldn't have been able to afford to build a direct marketing network worldwide without American Express. Yeah. Then, because we're a direct marketing agency to an extent, we did very well in B2B, far better in B2B than most agencies did, because you can't really do B2B without some one-to-one communication, Mm. okay, right? And because we did well in B2B, we started winning tech clients. And so I was literally in a meeting in the early 90s where 
we were all gathered together as I was a copywriter then, fairly junior copywriter, and the client service person came along and said, I've got a brief here for a company called Microsoft. And she had to explain who they were. Uh-huh. And the way she explained it, she said, when you turn on your IBM black and white monitor in the morning, it says MS-DOS 2.8 or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The MS there stands for Microsoft. Wow. And they're the company that write the software inside the machine. And we're all there going, oh, that's a weird kind of business. Who yeah. on earth would think there was money in writing software? <laughs> Who knew? So it literally was a case where they were explaining to me, and I was fairly tech savvy, yeah. what, what the effing hell Microsoft was. And so we tended to do quite well in tech. Okay, so we had Compact, we had Microsoft, and then we had IBM. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm missing one there as well, actually. And as a result of that, we we, we had a bit of a we had a bit of an advanced um, introduction into digital marketing and advertising. Yeah. But those things were, to some extent, you know. And then I also argue David Ogilvy wrote books which turned out to be bestsellers over a period of sort of not a year, as I think David David always cursed that because he, for tax reasons or for reasons of generosity, he gave the, the royalties from Ogilvy on advertising to his son, who was then like 12 years old. Oh, wow. Thinking it was a nice little present of a couple of thousand dollars. <laughs> okay. And, uh, <coughs> th- th- those books in particular, Ogilvy on advertising, kind of never stopped selling. No, no. And um, so, you know, that I also I occasionally say to Ogilvy, people say, oh, why are you going and doing a conference? I go, if David Ogilvy hadn't written Ogilvy on advertising, there's a 50% chance we wouldn't exist. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Well, yeah a, hell of a, lot of, a hell of a lot of success when you actually disentangle it yeah. is surprisingly probabilistic. It's surprisingly random. Yeah. There was a couple of things. I was so lucky. Um, I worked at Bartley Card years ago and I got to go to Ogilvy. Um, a few times in New York um, oh, wow. and, and yeah. it was just fabulous you know and I was uh, looking after the brand outside of the UK and you know the, there was a Barclay card brand overseas in, in, in the States was there? yeah um, that's yeah. that's that's what that's we were kind of tussling with that there was a Barclay card US but it was kind of a white label business right so it had a white yeah. like, like mm. joint cards with LL Bean actually an Apple credit card because Barclay Card, if I'm, I'm not right about this, Barclay Card had the exclusive rights to Visa and in the back. early days of yeah, 1960 right? or something. Yeah, yeah. So that it mm. was all kind of complex. I think there's a lot of reverse engineering. And then when I was there as well, the BA Card was Amex. Mm. It was all complicated. Mm. But talking about adoption, I was there at a really good time where I was uh, around when the contactless thing was happening. So we worked on the, you know, the the. Sort of the stuff around the water slide ad, and you know the the um, BBH did you know the water slide ad that, that did really well. So yeah, that was great. And then they, we were finding out about user adoption, and you know, and all these types of things. You know, so it was it was quite incredible. And I was going to just say, I by mean, the way, yeah. that business. I mean, I I I would be nowhere if I hadn't worked on American Express for the first. Mm. So sort of six years I worked as a copywriter because you learn everything. There's acquisition, there's retention, yeah. you know, uh, every single component of the direct marketing universe. Yeah. So working on cards, a card business is a brilliant, brilliant introduction. Yeah. You're always you great. Know, to you understanding know? everything else. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. personality wise, I'm not very corporate. So that, yeah, I didn't suit that mm. part of it, but yeah, it was, it was fascinating. We, and we, we bought egg. No, you time. and me, you and me both. Bought, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they bought egg and screwed it up. They bought it's funny that not very up. corporate thing, but I've often said if mm. I 
Okay, technically, there's a WPP policy that you can't go first class on the train and shit like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I just go, screw this. Look, the point of that is to save money. I'm going to book an advanced first class ticket because I worked for you for 30 years. I think I know how to catch a train, right? (laughs) And I book an advanced first, which costs vastly less than the second class ticket I'm allowed to buy. And I sit there having free buns and getting on with some work, (laughs) right? Now, I I don't know why it is, but I couldn't work for an organization where I got into trouble for doing that. Yeah. Oh, you would. yeah, and you would. You right. seriously would. Oh, yeah yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you know. There's a hotel policy on dry cleaning, and you're not allowed to do. Da, 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 da. Mm. You know, and if you know, if I worked for a place where there weren't, kind of, I mean, this is why I'm weirdly sympathetic. Okay, to the Downing Street rule breaking. Yeah. Because I go look. Okay, first of all, okay, there's asymmetry of information here because no one takes photographs of people working hard at their desks, right? Yeah. So there aren't any photographs of all the hours of time when these people were presumably working too hard. Mm -hmm. Secondly, if you have, and I hope they have been, because they damn well should have been, if you have been working 15-hour, 16-hour days, 18-hour days for five days in a row, okay, you kind of need to wind down, Mm -hmm. okay? You know, I don't drink very much. Everybody assumes because I'm a bit, lo- bit the larger man, big boned. Mm. Everybody assumes I'm a massive boozer. I don't drink very much. But Friday evening, I kind of go, okay, I want to, I want a phase transition here. I've been basically, you know, you know, slightly, you know, slightly on edge or on ten hooks for five days in a row. I just want a, a rapid way of decompressing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. My, my view is, look, okay, I mean, you can't. It's not. It's not fucking Watergate, right? It's a picture of a guy with tinsel around his neck. And, okay, in a period lasting a year or, you know, 40 months, is, you know, they're already working together. Now, don't get me wrong. If, you, if they started getting in escorts or something, yeah, right? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> that's a different matter. The purpose of the rules were to prevent people mixing with strangers, mm-hmm, okay? Mm-hmm. If you happen to live in the Playboy Mansion or you happen to live in Windsor Castle, right, you're all there in a household, yep. okay? Now, I imagine... Okay, we don't know. I know pretty much that loads of journalists during lockdown who had to go in because it was a reserved profession, loads of people in newsrooms, you know, got a bit pissed on Friday because they, you know, they had to take the risk of any risk of COVID transmission had already, they'd already been exposed to that Mm -hmm. risk. Okay. And I, I regard this incredible kind of literal minded interpretation of the rules as infantile. I just, you know, I mean, the point was the rules existed for a reason. Mm. Um, if you could do something that was enjoyable that didn't significantly increase the risk of of, um, uh, of viral spread, well, that's kind of okay, right? Mm. And, and so I, I just I, there's a bit of me. Don't get me wrong. I you know I think I think it was an appalling judgment, and it showed you know very very bad judgment in many ways, and also. I mean, the fact that they allowed photographs to be taken was kind of evidence of the fact they didn't really realise they were doing anything wrong. Yeah, and that was, that, was, that was pretty stupid. I get all that. But at the same time, the level of, of kind of opprobrium, because, of course, it suddenly occurred to me that 80% of people never drink at work. Okay? Mm. Or when you do, it's a Christmas party, yeah. which is basically carnage. I think, and we're, we're used to drinking at work, aren't we? We're used to drinking. We just go, well, yeah, it's Friday, it's Friday at six o'clock. Yeah. You know, I mean, a, lot of these, a, lot of, a lot of these bastards, you know, you get, you, you get a place like Reading, right? The fucking roads are rammed at 5, 5.05 because everybody gets to five o'clock and they all head home. Yeah. Now, in, in businesses where people routinely stay till six, seven, eight, nine, ten, you know, different rules pertain. It's a bit unfair making someone stay till 10 o'clock and you can't even have a beer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And so we're, we're all kind of used to it. And in the end, obviously, in the hospitality industry, it's not that weird, right? You know, Definitely in not. bars, people have a bit of a lock-in after work and, you know, it's one of the perks of the job. And it suddenly occurred to me that, of course, in a large number of people, the only time you get drink in the office is the Christmas party, which yeah. is total drunken. I had a friend who, I promise I'm not making this up, okay. <laughs> this guy had worked in the music industry uh-huh. for 10 years. And he thought he'd seen every kind of excess. And one year, he crashed his brother-in-law's work Christmas party <laughs> at an accountancy firm in Hemel Hempstead. Right. Okay, and he was shocked at the depravity. Right. <laughs> okay. He was he was aghast at the level of depravity. Okay, because actually, you don't want to go to a music industry or an advertising agency Christmas party because those people, you know, they have drinks quite a bit. They're not yeah. that crazy. Yeah. If you go to an accountancy firm Christmas party when it's the one occasion in the year where you're going to get a taxi home, yeah, yeah, it's total carnage. And it's always the new dad. The the worst. The new dad is the total casualty. It's the first time in eight months. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I I did that once. I I only did it once as new dad, where I basically, you know, was collapsed unconscious on the floor (laughs) in front of my toddler children, you know, because it was the first time. I can't remember what it was. We had some sort of babysitting arrangement. It was like the first time in several years. Totally out of practice. (laughs) And, um, but no, I mean, it's it's, it's very, I find these things very interesting because it's the, you know, the asymmetry of perception is always quite interesting, yeah. which is I don't think the people there in that setting realised they were doing anything weird, mm. okay? Whereas to other people, it looks weird. Most people don't have an office with a garden, so any group of people in a garden is, by definition, a party. Yeah. Whereas, I, as I made the point, I've only been to one business meeting in a garden in 30 years of working life, which was in the Garden of 10 Downing Street because it was a sunny day, and they go, well, let's go and meet outside. Yeah. Well, this is a bit weird. Yeah, but of course, yeah. if you work there, it's not weird. Yeah. Right? Just another you know, room. Just another room. It's just another room. Yeah. Perfectly sensible use of outdoor space, by the way, you know. Yeah. Um, I, so you know, it always intrigues me this that the, I mean, what's really interesting about marketing when you boil it all down is that there is no such thing as objective perception. Mm-hmm. Okay genuinely the idea that we see you know that money is money and that a dollar is a dollar and so forth there is there is no objective perception so marketing isn't an optional extra it's not an additive it's actually integral to the very business of selling something particularly something innovative or new or different but not exclusively that yeah uh, the, the, the most interesting example of that which i i, I never occurred to me I, um some behavioral scientists made the point that in the United States and the UK, we measure fuel economy miles per gallon. Mm-hmm. Okay. And in Europe, they do liters per hundred kilometers. They do it the other way around. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the argument that they made, which is quite interesting when you think about it, is that um, because we have miles per gallon, we get a slightly silly idea of what's important in fuel economy because we think getting a car from 40 to 50 miles miles to the gallon is a big deal, mm-hmm. whereas getting a car from 16 to 20 miles per gallon doesn't sound that big. It's only four, yeah. okay? If that's only four, okay? That's not a big difference, whereas 40 to 50 is 10. Yeah. Now, in percentage terms, of course, it's much more important to do do the, the, you know, the 16 to 20 than it is to do the 40 to the 50. Yeah. Okay, I think yeah. I got that right. Maybe yep. I haven't actually, but but we, we we tend we tend to kind of we tend to downplay the value of. Now the interesting thing is, okay, if you imagine a world where we didn't have miles per hour as on our speedometers mm-hmm. in a car, we did it the other way around, and we had minutes 
minutes per 10 miles. So at 60 miles an hour, it'll be 10 minutes for 10 miles. And if you went 120, it'll be five. And if you went at 30, it will be 20. Okay. We'd perceive speed in a totally different way. Yeah. And everybody would drive completely differently. Mm-hmm. I got that slightly wrong with the miles per gallon thing. Yeah, you no, get I, get, right I get what you mean. Yeah, yeah you, get, you get what I'm saying. Okay. And um, the the interesting thing there is that um, uh, we, even though those two things are mathematically identical, one of them is, is directly, you know, a function of the other. Mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, the way you present totally objective information affects how people respond and how people behave. What do you think would happen? Uh, well, I, well, well, a very interesting thing happened, and I, I'll tell you what I think would happen. I think people would drive more slowly. Do you? And I, yeah, and I'll tell you why. Because what you realise is that, um, first of all, eighty miles an hour feels a lot faster than sixty, mm. and so we make much more effort trying to go eighty rather than sixty than we do spend trying to go sixty rather than thirty. And the only time I learnt this was when I first got a sat nav. And of course, sat navs, they have their faults, but they're amazingly good at, at estimating arrival time yeah, to yeah. a freakish extent. Yeah. And when I got a sat nav, what I suddenly noticed was that, you know, I'd be driving down the motorway and then I'd get onto an empty stretch of motorway and I'd start wellying it at like 85. And after a few minutes of doing this, your arrival time maybe hadn't changed or it had been reduced by one minute. Yeah. And like I said, it's not worth risking death or losing your license or a serious accident to save three minutes on a journey yeah. or five minutes. Okay. And so I stopped driving so fast. I just thought, okay, the point is to maintain a constant kind of 50, 60 miles an hour. Don't get stuck in traffic. Don't get stuck in a tailback where you're going 20 miles an hour. That massively not because you know, if you if you get stuck in a in a in a tailback, your arrival time starts kicking up like nobody's business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting it back down again would require you to drive at about 160 to make up for the time you'd lost in a traffic jam. Mm. And so it really interests me, you know, that that the way in which you present objectively identical information has an effect on how people respond. And, you know, the way you present price, if people compare price to one thing, they'll think it's expensive. If you compare it to something else, they'll think it's cheap. You know, I mean, it's very interesting because how do we see Nespresso is the interesting case. I yeah. was I was psyched because I go, we don't compare it to Nescafe. We compare it to Starbucks. And so we're happy paying, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 pence for a cup of coffee we make at home. Yeah. Because we go, well, you know, it would cost me £2.60 at Starbucks. Well, hey, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it intrigues me about things like um, My Supper Hero, actually, mm-hmm. because you could think of that as really expensive because it kind of is compared to buying an M&S ready meal or, or, or cooking the food yourself. But on the other hand, okay, compared to going out for a fairly average meal, it's not actually that bad. No. I mean, Marks and Spencer's did a wonderful price reframe. Yeah, okay. Cause there's no way M&S can compete with Lidl or Aldi or even Sainsbury's Tesco, et cetera. Okay. Yeah. So they had that wonderful thing that was dine-in for two for £10, yes. wasn't it? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a bottle of wine. I got this right. I think it's a bottle of wine, main course for two and a pudding for two or yep. something. And they did it for a tenner. And that's really, really clever because you're not framing yourself against ordinary supermarkets because you're going to lose. Yeah. Okay. I always love the other bit of behavioural genius at M&S, right, which is three for seven pounds, those items. Because right. have you ever actually checked? You know when you get you get a hummus and a taramas latte yeah. and a tzatziki yeah. and it's three? I've never actually checked. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I've just got, oh, there must be a deal here, so be. I better buy three of them. And it suddenly occurred to me that actually, you know, 
to be honest, you know, I can I can end up buying two <laughs> things for two pounds twenty five. Go, oh, it's three for seven. Yeah. Pounds. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and but but it really it it fascinates me so much because you know we haven't been calibrated to perceive the world like scientific instruments uh, because evolution is interested in avoiding catastrophe more than it is optimizing for. Perf- and also most most things in life, by the way, that are really important don't really have a metric. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, I'd like you know, I mean, I know there are dating algorithms which claim to have some success, and, and by the way, very weird success. By the way, yeah. the, the the factors that seem to be really relevant are, um, let me get this right. Um, uh, one of them is uh, liking or disliking horror films seems to have quite high predictive value of a of a relationship that survives. Oh, uh, what are you on horror films? I've got no interest. I, I mean, I watch the classics like Halloween yeah, and stuff. I don't, and, I don't you know, love them. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll but I don't really it. get it. I don't really get yeah. the horror genre. It's just one of those things. Yeah, mm. I don't actively dislike it. I mean, I'm, I'm just a personal. I'm in the, I'm in the dating thing just now, and it's, um, ah. and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. But yes, you know, they do predict. So, do you use apps? Do you use yeah. these? Yeah, because somebody said to me, age somebody else, age fifty, said uh-huh. when I look at when I look at contemporary dating, and I'm in a relation. I've been in a relationship since 1984, whatever. Okay, I feel like someone who caught the last helicopter out of Saigon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, it's, it's 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 definitely scary out there. Um, I think um, it's just the banality of a lot of it as well. It's like the questions that they prompt you to, you know, spark a conversation. It's like, I've never seen Star Wars. It's just like, bore off, you know, and there's a, there's a lot of that sort of stuff, but yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting, but it's definitely changed. I mean, I was in a 25 year relationship. So, and then I, mm. you know, just came out of it last year. So it's, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely, yeah, quite, things have changed, put it that way. Things have changed. Mm. But there's a couple of things. I mean, I only to let you go and have I your, do, your well, I do drink worry up. about. I do worry about the paradox of choice a bit, in the sense that you know you're exposed to so much, oh. so much. You know, it's that, a nightmare. Do do people ultimate? What we don't know is that we know of the relationships that what proportion that form what proportion succeed, mm-hmm. but we don't know what proportion of relationships would have been successful were it not for the fact that people have become too picky. Oh, it's horrendous. I mean, you're, you're, because you, there's no three dimensions to I it. I mean, I always found that you about know? men watching Sex in the City. Okay. Right. <laughs> the really frustrating thing is, okay, I don't get it. That guy seems fine. You know, you're there having this chat about you're not really sure about Brad because, you know, he, you know, he, he didn't <laughs> fold his trousers when he, you know, he just scrumpled them on the floor. And you're kind of going, what is this shit? You know what I mean? What's, I mean, you know, he's fine. Problem? He's a nice guy. What's your problem? Yeah. You know, and um, and so when you get to that level of incredible pickiness. Well, it's just materialistic because all you're doing mainly is judging someone on their looks. Yeah. That's yeah. it. And, uh, well, End well, of that, story. That, that's, hi- that's highly problematic in itself because you're because pro- a static photograph doesn't capture looks plus personality because no. looks plus personality kind of uh, there's an interplay. And another, another thing is no one is as advertised. I'll tell you that as well, mm. <laughs> including me. But yeah, when, when when they turn up, you're like, oh, really? <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, 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 and I think they're I think they're probably the same. Way, you know? It goes two ways. There's this wider social media concern, mm. okay, um, which is that someone put it very beautifully, and they said that you are living life backstage, 
okay, as it's really lived, yeah. okay, while you're exposed to everybody else's edited highlights. Yes. And it creates a completely unrealistic view that, you know, everybody else is more attractive than you, having a better time than you, with cleverer kids than you. Who yeah, just, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's a kind of complete distortion. Yeah. Because... As I said, you know, in, in defense of the Downing Street parties, no one takes a photograph of here's Dave typing, right? <laughs> okay. And yeah. so you don't actually have a, a, a properly impartial view. It's rather like, by the way, did anybody see that that, that protest against Johnson where some people were shouting, a, 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 sorry, against Keir Starmer? Keir Starmer, okay. yeah. Right. That was horrendous. Now, that, that looked horrendous. Oof. But somebody else on Facebook posted an aerial photograph, right? And it was basically 17 or 16 people round a car who were mostly there to do with some anti-masking protest with Piers Corbyn. Right. So their animus towards Keir Starmer may have actually been nothing to do with this. Right. Okay. And it looked like nothing. I mean, it looked yeah. genuinely like, you know, a few annoying people mobbing somebody. Yeah. But from another camera angle, it that looks like POV. a totally terrifying incident. Yeah, oh, a POV geez. question. Okay, I actually watched it and I thought, is that is this today? Like, is, is this happened months yeah, yeah, ago? I know, like, I just, I know, I know. My jaw dropped. I was like, my God, my God. What, what had apparently actually happened? There was an anti-masking protest. Uh, by the way, this is a really weird one because what, what I find utterly fascinating about this is increasingly, I think, we come into contact with mindsets that we just totally don't understand. Okay. Yeah. And so there is this, there are certain things which I just don't get at all. I don't get Harry Potter. Okay. Right. I'd like to. <laughs> you do, well, do well in the dating sites. That's for people, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Don't just, just don't get it. Right. Okay. You know, I've got a limited amount of time. I don't think I'll read, you know, I'm not reading the famous five. So yeah. why would I read this? Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't get Strictly Come Dancing, but I watch the pottery. I watch the pottery thing. Right? Oh, I just don't get Strictly Come Dancing. Yeah. And, then, and, and increasingly we find ourselves in this world where, you know, and, and there are certain things like the anti-masking thing. I get the anti-vaxxing thing, okay? Mm. But the anti-masking thing, I didn't, really, I didn't really get that, okay? Yeah. Because, okay, there is some basis in science which is, you know, are we doing this a bit too fast? Is it good to vaccinate kids? Or should we actually allow natural immunity given that the risk to children is small? Mm. Okay, I don't necessarily agree with it. I also think there's a reason to vaccinate children, which is to prevent them being vectors of transmission to other people. Yeah. But, I, I, you know, I, I think you should be allowed to express that opinion, actually. Mm -hmm. Okay. But the masking thing, that was a wonderful put down by a comedian, Bill Bailey, I think. Mm -hmm. said, People are saying, you know, masking rules, it's like the Nazis. And as Bill Bailey said, yes, that's right, because that's what the Nazis were principally famous for, was imposing minor inconveniences. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. And I kind of go, okay, it might make a difference. It yeah. might make someone else feel safe. Yeah. You know, it's like opening the door for someone, right? Or, you know, or basically cleaning the, you know, it, you know, if you've left a bit of shit on the edge of the bowl, you kind of clean up for the next yeah, person. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. I always, I always clean up at McDonald's, and it's it, the very simple reason I clean up at McDonald's or KFC is I go cleaning up at McDonald's once every week is actually quite fun. You get the tray and you slide yeah. the stuff in. Right? Quite a, There's a bit of jeopardy as you do it. You know, yeah, yeah be exactly. It is a yeah. nice bit of jeopardy, yeah. particularly if they're liquids yeah, involved. Sure. Yeah. Nice. That, yeah. K, that KFC gravy can take the arm off. Okay. But having to do that job 500 times a day is probably really, really monotonous. Yeah. Okay. So I go, look, let's have 100 people do this once rather than 500, one person do it 500 times. Yeah. You know, it's just a logical thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so there are certain things like the anti-masking things where I'm just going, 
you know, are, are these people completely nuts? Yeah, yeah. Right. You know, are they, you know, are they completely it's insane? Just being because a good human being, isn't it? It's just, it's just like a politeness thing. Yeah. And by the way, by the way, I mean, it's very interesting because on the social, the social justice movement, which does do some weird things, and I think we ought to agree with this, and sometimes it's counterproductive. The one thing I don't get as a person, you know, who writes for the spectator who's probably politically right of center, okay, I don't get the anger about trigger warnings. Because mm-hmm. that strikes me as a perfectly sensible thing to do, okay? Mm-hmm. You're producing some content. Yep. It is possible in an audience of a 1,000 people that there may be something which is totally innocuous to uh, 99% of the people there, but is deeply alarming to others, yeah. okay? So warning people, just as you warn people of flashing lights exactly. because you may have epileptics, warning people that this covers, you know, I imagine, I, I'm not a recovering heroin addict, right? But I imagine if you're a recovering heroin addict, seeing footage involving needles might be highly problematic, yeah. okay? Now, I'll tell you a story about trigger warnings, which is how blind you can be, okay? Which is, <laughs> okay, um, in the early days, when I used to fly quite a lot, I used to download stuff from my Skybox mm-hmm. onto my uh, laptop on SkyGo. SkyGo, yeah. And I'd watch it on the plane, okay? And I used to quite enjoy this. You know, if you had a three-hour flight, this is, you, 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 on short haul, you didn't have any in-flight entertainment. So I thought, you know, I don't want to do any work. I'll just watch this. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay. Yeah. I used to watch, without it ever occurring to me, okay, I used to watch... Um, Air crash investigation. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd be sitting there on a plane, okay? And on the screen in front of me, like a 17-inch MacBook, you know, MacBook, <laughs> there'd be like, you know, a Japan Airlines plane <laughs> flying into a mountain, you know, and then wreckage strewn over there. And it was only when I'd done this three times or somebody else pointed out to me, they said, you do realise that, you know, about 20% of the people in the plane are shit scared of flying, yeah. okay? And there's a reason that airlines don't put air crash investigation on the in-flight entertainment <laughs> system, right? There's a really good reason for that. <laughs> and I honestly admit, it never occurred to me. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. just didn't occur to me. Well, the, the one the one that's interesting at the moment is Disney+. Plus. Um, I've mm. been watching the, the Pammy and Tommy thing, the Pamela Anderson, Tommy Lee oh. video thing. It's quite it's fun. I, it, it's an absolute send-up of itself and has... Uh, has like you know Willie talks to him and so it's really funny it's really surreal but um it's a it's on Disney weird yeah B, weird yeah um it comes up at the start it says graphic sex and did it and all that but then all it says all the time all the way through in the top left hand corner is contains tobacco but doesn't see no. all the other stuff yeah it's, it's the yeah it's the tobacco thing that's the big th- deal th- this like, this is something this is something that caused to my dad who still smokes at the age of ninety. One, two, 92. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, this is the thing that drives him practically insane because he says, you know, the the extent to which moral opprobrium simply moves from one place to another. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, if you, if you think of various things that would previously have excited significant moral condemnation. Yeah. And, and by the way, by the way, I think it's probably fair to say, okay, in the scheme of things... Um, and this is complicated. Uh, alcohol gets off lightly in comparison to tobacco. For sure. And that's simply because most people drink, whereas most people don't smoke. Yeah. So so if you look at, okay, uh, if you look at alcohol, one, um, tobacco does bring your life prematurely to a close on average, although in my dad's case, perhaps not. Okay, yeah, well. but on average, okay, we buy that. But it doesn't screw up your 30s or 40s, right? Now, if you get a major drink dependency problem, the 
externalities, you know, in other words, the effect it has on your family, your relationships, your ability to work, your ability to interact with other human beings is catastrophic. And also, by the way, of, of all my contemporaries who've died young, okay, died really young, in other words, they're already dead, and they're my contemporaries, okay. Now, one of the things I would say to scandalise people is I prefer my daughters took up smoking than took up cycling in London. And everybody goes, you know, that's a disgusting yeah. thing to say. And I go, no, 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 because, because I said, okay, yeah. if they if they die at sixty seven, it's a bummer, okay. Yeah. If they die at twenty one, it's a catastrophe. Yeah. Right. And you know, I get the fact that smoking is worse for you than cycling at you know at an aggregate statistical level. Yeah. But of the people, you know, people I know who are already dead, I think it's you know a rare cancer, um, heart disease in one case. Um, uh, um, mountaineering accident, uh, motorcycle accident, um, suicide, and then three people from booze. Basically, or four, four people yeah. from booze. Yeah, yeah. You know, essentially, you know, okay, you know, it probably doesn't statistically appear as a drink-related death. Yeah. Whereas lung cancer does appear as a, you know, a, a, a you know, a, a smoking-related disease. Yeah, yeah. But nonetheless, you know, I mean, if you want, if you want a catastrophic early death, booze, you know, and also you know, a total screw-up of your general thing, booze dependency. Now, most people aren't booze dependent. Most yeah. people are lucky enough genetically. But if you are genetically disposed that way, it's a real, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and you're right, I love that. Contains tobacco is yeah. there all <clears> the time. Yeah, yeah, apart yeah. from, you know, all the other yeah. stuff. Right, I think yeah. I better let you go and get your, your Friday booze on. Um, so we've successfully asked pretty much none of the questions, um, but we've had a great chat. It's been brilliant catching mm. up with you. Um and there was a couple of final things I was just going to um, sort of ask you and a bit of fun, really. So mm. um, it's it's restaurant related, so this will be a nice thing to sort of end on. So we call it Mark Out of 10. It's quick fire questions and it's just about food and drink stuff. So best city to eat in? Oh my giddy aunt. Whoa. That is tough. Actually, given my love of Indian food, I'd probably say somewhere like London or, um, uh, you know, somewhere. Actually, Singapore would be pretty good, Singapore. Tender, wouldn't it? Yeah, uh, I have to say because, and the other, the other one that would be interesting would be, I mean, Malaysian food's particularly mm -hmm. amazing. So I had, I had every single meal I had in um, Malaysia was sensational. Yeah. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm very much kind of uh, Oriental in my tastes. I think. Mm -hmm. um, but London actually is pretty damn good because I mean, and, and the other great thing about Indian food is it's really good. You can find a really good Indian restaurant everywhere. It's not one of those foods where you have to go to a big city to get it done properly. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can go and find a sort of provincial Welsh curry house and have a fantastic meal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so, so yeah, I mean, uh, um, that's, that's, that's a really, that's a really fantastic question, but I mean, I I wouldn't put New York because it's too weak on Indian food. Mm. Um, they they you know uh, the diaspora is relatively recent and it tends to go into senior management. Yeah. So it, <laughs> uh, uh, but um, the other the other foods I mean the foods I really love uh, I suppose by ethnicity which is not a perfect measure yeah. Indian Malaysian Burmese you know Nepalese all that stuff yeah. uh, is kind of like that's the symphony orchestra, nice. and then funnily enough Scottish I will include as Ooh. one of the so there are certain cuisines which are quite limited in breadth, but are fantastic 
for what they are. Yeah. So Scottish Lebanese, for example, um, I'm probably doing a disservice to Korean, but Korean food strikes me as absolutely brilliant. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, now, I'm sure if I went to Seoul, I'd find a far greater range. But those things like dolsop, bibimbap, and um, kimchi, I absolutely love. Yes. And, um, is it, t- is it, all t- that t- stuff. T- is it, I don't know how you pronounce it. Is it tteokbokki? T- tteokbokki or something? Yeah, there is something. Like you're right, rice, you're right. The rice cake things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so Korean food is fantastic. Yeah, because it's like Japanese food with a kick. Yeah, yeah. You know? oh, I definitely. mean, it's got the it's got the subtlety and sophistication of Japanese food, but it's also got a bit of you yeah. know. Uh, and um, so Korean food is a is a particular kind of. Uh, that's one of the things, by the way, which I'm looking to dish patch or supper hero mm-hmm. uh, to solve. Yeah, uh, which is the whole question of you know how you get Korean food out here. Yeah. Um, Definitely. There probably is one in Brighton, isn't there? There probably is a Korean place in Brighton. Yeah, there's a couple actually. Yeah, there's one. I can't remember the name of it, but it does. Um, it does that tteokbokki and, and, and bibimbap stuff and all yeah. that um, bibimbap stuff. Um, so yeah, there's a couple, but they're they're you have to kind of seek them out, you know. Um, but I, very I good, in, very good Indians in Brighton. Um, the black chapati. Now, does that still exist? The black chapati in Brighton because I, I, I heard great things about it years ago. I never got round yeah. to going. The, There's quite a good one in that hotel near the library. So it's the chili pickle, yeah. So Don the chili Allen. pickle, yeah, 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 yeah. That's a great place. That's, that's a great place. Yeah, it's a fantastic place. Um, and then the shims down here and on a dark kitchen. Um, what? Yeah, dark kitchen. So, so hold on. How does so so what you can get dishum delivered, yep. but you can't. No way. Yeah, yeah. You can do it right now. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, down. Come down. Yeah, that's interesting. I've got to come down. Yeah, bloody hell. So Dishoom's open. That is fascinating. Yeah. Okay. I've ended up wow. with... Yeah, I've ended up with maybe 15, they're, 16, maybe, somewhere at the end. They're, they're, two, they're two industries. If I didn't work in advertising, they're two industries I'd love to work in. I, mm. The airline industry, weirdly, and the uh, the, the food industry. And the, what I love is the mixture of hard economics and theatre. Yes, you know, it, it, you know, it's not a, it's not a totally flaky world. Okay, they're oh, really, oh, really hard commercials underpinning absolutely everything you do. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, you know, and, and you know, with an airline, it's absolutely hardcore logistics yeah. and hardcore engineering. But then people will choose to fly on Virgin rather than British Airways because they didn't like the nut selection. Yeah. You know, and so that mixture of complete human whimsy with hardcore engineering just strikes me as endlessly fascinating. Yeah, yeah. No, you'd love the, it. Oh, the Dishoom Dark Kitchen. That is yeah, really yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's great. Travels travels magnificently. Um, so a couple of things then, other things. So best restaurant. Have you got a best restaurant that you love? Ah, oh, that's painful. Well, we mentioned Roti King. I think we've probably yeah. given them enough. That is a really, really tough question. Um, oh, crikey. Um I used to have a favourite dish, which was a thing called mutton zakuti at yes. Gopal's, but Gopal's no longer exists, I don't think. Um, uh, there are a few other things. Uh, the, um, there's one called Tobang, uh, just in the kind of it's sort of Farringdon Road area, mm-hmm. which <coughs> which is Korean, which I absolutely love. <coughs> that- uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I've got another favourite Indian thing, uh-huh. which is a thing called... I- it's 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 a mightily expensive um, Indian. In it's it's actually rare because it's a Pakistani restaurant in Kinnerton Mews in SW1, okay. and it's called Salu. Huh? And they do a thing called Asha. Is it? Um, 
Ah, right. Let me go and find. Okay, uh, let me go and find the menu. Uh, it's probably the most expensive Indian in London, but it's not that expensive. If you yeah, know what I mean. In yeah. the that's a framing thing. Grand we had this. Things. The thing that used to really annoy me is people would go, we went out for an Indian meal and it cost £30. Yeah. You go, well, it's better than French food. You wouldn't complain if you spent 60 quid yeah. in a French restaurant. Yeah, yeah, okay, And Indian food's better. In yeah. my, By the way, in my scheme of things, all Indian restaurants have a Michelin star by default. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it's just better. Okay, so <laughs> if you're an Indian restaurant, you automatically start out with a Michelin star <laughs> in, my, in my universe, and then you only can lose it by being disappointed. <laughs> um, but here we go. I will look at the Salou, the Salou menu. Um, uh, here we go. Um, uh, here we are. Um, and I think, because I don't want to get it wrong. Okay, I'm going to leave this web page. Uh, right, menu page, Salus. Here we go. Because uh, I keep forgetting. And once or twice I go there and they don't have it. Halim Akbari, which okay. is shredded lamb cooked with whole wheat germ, lentils and spices, cooked for over a day until all the ingredients melt into one. An original dish from the times of the Mughal emperors. And um, one of the funniest things I ever had to do, by the way, is the Spectator celebrated its 10,000th edition from it's something like 1820 something, and they yeah. published 10,000 editions. And they wanted me to review the advertising over the period. And so they sent me loads and loads of advertisements dating back to the kind of early to mid 19th century. Oh, must be fascinating. And what's hysterical is if you can imagine the Spectator would have been the kind of house magazine for Raj retirees. Yeah. Okay. And the number of ads for Indian spices and condiments is insane. And you imagine these poor guys, I shouldn't say this, it's not really politically correct thing, these poor guys from the Raj, they're colonial exploiters, right? But they get back and they retire to England and they're faced, they've had the finest foods of India, and then suddenly they face the rest of their life eating boiled mutton. Crazy. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And so the number of ads for Indian spices, condiments, and, um, and everything else was absolutely amazing. Just, off Just the extraordinary. Charts. Yeah. Yeah. So that no, so Halim Akbari, I have to say, has to be, it's 24 quid for a single dish, but I, every time it's worth it. I absolutely love it. You, yeah. You'd pay 24 quid in a gastro mm. pub for a, mm. you know, a steak or whatever. But I'll, I'll put the links to it in, in the podcast notes. So I last, noticed they've got something called Ran Masala, which serves four to six people for 100, 150 quid. It does serve six people, which is slow roasted whole leg of lamb. One interesting thing. Lamb is so weird in terms of its geographical distribution. So uh -huh. I was in the United States and I was at quite a sophisticated, like Silicon Valley event yeah. with a load of kind of academics. And the host was Middle Eastern, so he served lamb. Yeah. And these, these Americans were going, like, we're eating a sheep. Like, is this, is this like, okay? <laughs> it was as if you'd serve them like horse or, you know, wow. I mean, and and I suddenly realised that Americans just don't eat lamb. They don't eat lamb. And so you get these places like Greece and the Middle East, which are massive lamb places. Australia is a massive lamb place. Yeah. The UK is a massive lamb place. Yeah. France, actually, is a massive lamb place. And then you, you've only got to cross a, a national border and people are going, oh, I'm not eating a sheep. Oh, wow. Really weird. Yeah. That's but actually, the thing that McDonald's has never been able to capitalise on is a lamb burger is tastier than a, a beef burger, isn't it? Yeah. Really. I, I think lamb's phenomenal. Uh, yeah. I think it's fantastic. Underrated. Underrated. Yeah, completely. By the way, the muck plant is a bloody impressive thing. It's I don't great. Even... It's, it's yeah, astonishing. I'm so glad you said that. It is so nice. Do you know, I, I had it the other week, and I wrote yeah. and I wrote to uh, Michelle, who um, she's the senior VP now of marketing, but yeah. like, I worked with her when she was a wee junior thing, but she's she's rocketed up the charts, and she's really high up. I was trying to get her on the podcast, but she said she was too shy. 
But um, yeah, I was, I was talking to her about it. I just said, that's, that's, fin- that's a triumph. And, and by the way, the psychology of calling things beyond meat is so clever. Yeah. Because in everything, everything vegetarian was always sold as a compromise. Yeah. You know, you know, it's nearly as good as it's mm. da, 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 da. And suddenly you call it beyond meat and it's meatier than meat itself. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. It's a really, really clever positioning where you you get away from this hair shirted thing about, yeah. you know, self-sacrifice and you just go all out. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah. Electric cars, wrong. you know, the Tesla Super Performance Edition is exactly the same kind of thing. Jeez. Don't don't apologize for having I, I've also got a by the way a, a, a big secret penchant for KFC because I like the way that you can mess. McDonald's is kind of dirigiste, you know, you eat the food as it's intended. Uh-huh. And I like the fact that with KFC, you can improvise. Well, you know, interesting. You see that though, um, McDonald's have just done like a campaign about hacking. Yeah. So it was quite actually, interesting to see it happen. Because hacking, actually, we've been hacking KFC for ages. You know, mm. you put this in the gravy and you pour the gravy over the fries, and, you I, know, I, and all that sort of stuff. Na- yeah. I, I think Nando's have introduced gravy lately. You see, it, isn't that a weird thing? Because the gravy is bloody fantastic. Oh, it's amazing. Really yeah, is, yeah. yeah. Very good. And then the last couple of questions, quick fire, were best alcoholic drink? Oh, blimey. Uh, weirdly, I'm going to be slightly embarrassing here. Uh, on its own, as a purist, it would still be whiskey. Uh-huh. Um, uh, which possibly I get from my Scottish, my <laughs> father's half Scottish. I'm in a, I'm in a quarter Scottish, yeah, yeah. Um, despite the name. Um, uh, on its own, uh, whiskey. Weirdly, um, um, I, this is interesting. I, I, I drink wine with food. I yep. think wine is overrated as a drink. Ah. I, I, I think as a whole category, it's overrated. Yeah. Um, not in the sense that it isn't really, really good. And with food, it's good. Without food, I think it's rubbish. I mean, I, I, I take this view. That this business where you go to a drinks party and that, 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 that three canapes, and you go, would you like a glass of bad red or would you like a glass <laughs> of bad white? Really, when I was president of the IPA, I insisted they had cocktail bars at everything. Yeah. I think, why are you having this cocktail bar? I said, we exist as the IPA because we believe in brands, right? Yeah. Why are we serving the stuff that's made by some random French peasant? Okay? <laughs> you know, we, we exist to promote and support the inherent superiority of branded goods. Yeah. Which true. are superior because they're Darwinian, right? If you produce a good beer or you produce a good spirit, it's replicable. Yeah. Okay? So you have selection and replication. And the same is true of cocktails, right? The whole thing is... You know, it's variation, selection, replication. Yeah. Okay. I had a thing which I, I'm just trying to remember what it was. That was at the Rose in Deal. And they have a, a rum-based cocktail, um, uh, 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 which I had the other day, which is called something like the Admiral's something other. Let me get the glorious thing there. Was it dark, dark rum, white rum? It was a dark rum yeah. cocktail, and it was sensational. Um, let me see if, I, if they actually have menu. They usually do. High Street, you, everybody has a different interface, don't they? Location, history, press, r- restaurant, here we go. Uh, they might not put up their cocktail bar. Um, uh, but what's what's really interesting is that I love cocktails. I think they're fantastic. Um, absolutely love them. And um, uh, the um, uh, so uh, my argument is the problem with wine is it's not replicable, mm. right? If you if you if you achieve some now beer, you know beer is one of the things that really delights me is the whole craft beer movement, mm-hmm. you know, because if you think about it, America used to be the worst country in the world in which to drink beer, and it's now probably the best, yeah. And that's happened within like ten or fifteen years. Yeah, I used to go to Delaware, and uh, it was maybe fifteen or more years ago now. 
and it was Dogfish Head and Blue Moon and and it was you know Sam Adams and all that stuff and you'd never you'd never tasted anything like it you were just your no. mind was blown no absolutely right you come back yeah, to the UK and you're like where can I get this where can I get this stuff you know I mean they've probably gone a bit heavy on the hoppy IPA haven't they? That, you know they, they, they've probably gone a bit heavy I mean you know they need they need a bit of mild occasionally or you know a few but nonetheless it's an astounding example of uh, kind of experimentation leading oh, yeah. to spectacularly rapid improvement. Definitely, definitely. Um, so I'm a big, big beer fan, um, uh, emphatically. Um, uh, I'm a, uh, I'm a, you know, pretty, uh, uh, pretty committed spirits fan as well. I actually just prefer getting drunk on beer or spirits, particularly spirits, than I do getting on drinking on wine as well. Yeah. yeah. You know, I get that slight red. I think a lot of people do, actually. It's something to do with sulfites, where the red wine thing causes me to overheat a bit like a ready yeah, brick kid. Uh, yeah. Well, I only had one more question for you, actually. So, Of course. Um, so the, the one more question was, um, if you were going out for, the, you know, a lovely meal to your favourite restaurant, um, who would you be taking with you? So dead or alive, celeb, someone not a celeb? Who would you want to take? Well, I take, take my family, obviously. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it'd be a bit weird to go off on your own. <laughs> uh, really, really, really interesting question. I mean, there are a few people I have had dinner with who are fantastic. You know, people like Nassim Taleb and um, wow. John Cleese and so forth. Wow. And you, I think you just take comedians, wouldn't you? Actually, yeah. At the end of the day, you probably just take a mixture of of really interesting comedians. Maybe take Jimmy Carr out and, and get him away from the firing line at the moment. <laughs> yeah, what was, a bit, what was a bit unkind about that, by the way, is if you watch the whole Netflix special in context, uh-huh. yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah, you, you, he gets away with it, right? Yeah, okay, in a way, way because the way he builds up to it and the way he pulls it out at the end, and it's part of a segment which is all about deliberately shocking going too away. far. So that business of taking, you know, you can't judge a novel on a single sentence. I think it's it's a little bit barbaric. Uh, to judge a comedy set on an out-of-context 15-second clip. Yeah. Well, it's like the Russell Brand, Jonathan Ross thing. I mean, as wrong as that was, but it was people who hadn't even heard the show were outraged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of those, you know. Actually, I'll be honest with you. I mean, the... um, uh, the Glaswegian comedian, I've just briefly forgotten his name, I've blanked on him. Kevin Bridges? No, and he's very, very funny. Oh, yeah. And actually, he genuinely isn't that nasty. Oh, but the Frankie, other guy, Frankie Boyle. Frankie Boyle. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. There are a few Frankie Boyle jokes, which I've heard, which are basically disgusting. Oh, as yeah. Well, as, the, as the car joke is, you know, in in and of itself, disgusting. Yeah. Okay. Um, the only point I'd make is that I don't, um, you know, I... Uh, you know, I, I mean, the, the, you know, there are a few of those which are actually directed at named handicapped individuals yeah. from Boyle, which I think is, come on, yeah. you know, this is kind of like, kind of weird. Okay. And, you know, it was agreed, presumably, by a bunch of people at the BBC to put that out, which I think is, you know, probably a mistake. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't, but equally, his shtick is that. Now, people have, people have said the interesting thing with him is that he's, you don't really want a full evening of him because it's too much vituperation yeah okay but in small doses uh it's it's manageable but I'd, I'd never i'd never try and ban comedy actually because um okay if you if you're a consequentialist i'd never try and censor or ban comedy and it's a very simple yeah, explanation yeah. okay i've never seen any evidence that people go home from comedy clubs and like beat up their partners or are abusive to their children no. or are less pleasant people or you know commit acts of violence if you're a consequentialist you ban football wouldn't you of course right yeah, yeah. right 
So, so the point is that there's what the thing is and they're what the effects are. And generally, the odd thing is the effects of comedy. The effects of comedy strike me as being ultimately benign. Yep. That what I always say is that funny solves the problems that angry creates. Yes, I agree. And so, uh, you know, suddenly stepping in with a very literalist mindset and saying this must all be stopped strikes me as a very dangerous thing to do. Because it, it's an evolutionary mechanism. We don't, it's like, a, you know, it's, we don't fully understand it. And the idea that we interpret it in this literal way is um, uh, is, is obviously nonsense. Yeah, yeah. You know, we don't interpret ads as if they're as if they're editorial, right? No. Okay. We 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 compensate for the fact that we know it's an ad when it's an you know an obvious overt piece of advertising. Mm. And I don't think I don't think we actually you know I don't think we react to comedy in that literalist way either. No. Okay, we you know so that, that so that's why I, I better go because I've just yes. got another phone call coming right. in. But this has been a total joy. Oh, thank you, Rory. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Take care. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye bye. Thanks, Rory. Bye bye. Bye bye. So there you go. Just one of my new favourite people in the world. I could have spoken to Rory for years. Never mind months or weeks or days. I'm so keen to catch up with Rory again soon and obviously we'll be showing the world what we're doing in terms of the thinking behind Hospitality Rising as hopefully we get closer to raising the millions that we need to stop the recruitment crisis forever. So thanks to you for listening. I know it's a long one. You maybe did it in a couple of stints, but anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks so much to Storekit and Saved by Robots, our great sponsors who have been supporting the podcast this series and also supporting me in terms of work and also helping me with Hospitality Rising. So thanks very much. Huge thanks to Gaz and Gabby for all they do in terms of the editing. I know this was a long one, so thanks for helping me out there. Again, it's just sounding brilliant. So this is me, Mark McSee, signing off. Bless you and thanks for listening. And I really hope that this episode has brought you the value, insight and information that you need to make your brand boom.